This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. And this is Blake Begin Again Simmons. <laughs> it is Begin Again Simmons. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Like a phoenix. <laughs> like a phoenix from the ashes. Here I am. Walking like a hurricane, everyone. <laughs> you, you began again, but you weren't born again. No, I always begin again. It's, always, it's never too late to hit the reset button. Are you like cl- right now. <laughs> are you are you clear? <laughs> I'm clear. All right, and it's time to I get dick 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 dick. Release the Kraken. Hey, begin again, Blake Simmons. Hey there, Third Rail Tom. How you doing? Swell. How are you? Uh, I'm doing so much better now that all the IV needles are out. I'll tell you what. This is what happens when you, uh, when your, you know, desperate measures have taken hold, and you go and you try to offer a kidney, and then they, they uh, give you a reasonable price, and then they say thank you for the liver. No, it's actually what happens when you don't pay your tab at a karaoke bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, long story short, uh, begin again. Blake Simmons was. Um, he was delayed and waylaid uh, in in country and has made it back by the skin of his teeth and he's on the mend. Yes, and I'm hoping the enamel grows back any day now. <laughs> it's a little disappointing that, that you have a near death experience in Japan and you don't come back with cyberware. I, I, I a friend of mine uh, texted like, "Hey, well at least you're in the best place to become a cyborg." I tell you what. <laughs> I mean, it really is tragic. You should have asked. <laughs> it's like, can I get an enhancement? And I don't mean that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like it's like when I was getting, uh, um, I got a crown. Well, I got a couple, but I got a crown from my dentist as an adult. And they're talking about all the resin composites and stuff and how they're going to color match all this stuff. And I said, really? No precious metals? And they're like, well, I mean, yeah, we can do gold, but we just, you know, of course you don't want that. And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> like no, but it's you know it's 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 going to be visible when you smile. And I said, "Well, yeah." Are you kidding me? <laughs> Have you been paying attention to recent modern history in America? Like, like a gold grill is where it's at. <laughs> anyway, so let's. It'd be great to get a gold grill, right? And then have like nickel plated printed on top. That would be kind of cool. Well, I was going to say it would be great is to have a gold grill and then you have flesh-colored grill on top of that. Or, like, not flesh, but bone, fake bone grill, or, you know, like, inset into it. Isn't that what, isn't that what the beaver has? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't, yeah. That, or, that or a fake soul transplanted from, you know, a Russian poet. <laughs> His ghost. Um, so, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to be, we're going to accelerate. We're going to, we're going to minimize. We're going to have no bullshit on this recording this time. There's going to be no bullshit in this session. I guarantee it. Uh, it's going to be 100% all business all the time. Exactly. Um, so as, do- as, as our intro comments can oh, yes. the most truly attest. Yes. So, uh, we're going to dive right into our sucking a monkey segment, which for new, new listeners, uh, is where we talk about what we're um, having to drink while we record. What are you having? <laughs> I'm having uh, <laughs> orange juice, water, and uh, nothing else. Now, are you including the IV drip or no? No, like I said, the the needles are all out, oh, so okay. I'm good. Yeah. So there's no saline. All right. No. Well, in my eyes, but yeah. No. <laughs> all right. 
Um, and what are you what are you having this pleasant Wednesday evening in the eve of the fireborn apocalypse? <laughs> um, well, so I'm drinking a, a, a cocktail that I have um, decided to call the megatoxin, um, which is, uh, you know, in honor of all the microtoxins that I've been inhaling for the last uh, four or five days due to these wildfires in our area. But um, why go small when you can go big? So there's some kettle one. There's some, uh, there's some, um, some, some, uh, tequila. I don't remember which one I used. Uh, there's some grapefruit juice and some pineapple juice, and it is as delicious as you can imagine. Nice. There are toxins. So, but, well, delicious. yeah. So, but that, that, that's just what we call, you know, uh, liver enhancements. Yes. And it's all in a Han Solo glass. Nice. Mm-mm. But, but which Han Solo? Mm-hmm. The, the the movie that you and I both loved immensely. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> Come on. Stick with the program. You loved it, and I loved it, and that's really all there is to it, and there's no evidence to the contrary. Huh. Okay. Let's do our Red Sky Roundup. This is where we talk yes. about, you know, like the news of the day, things that are interesting us, inter, interesting us, things that are interesting to us. Yes. What's interesting to you? What's been going on? Well, I'm still kind of suffering from an existential ennui from the passing of Stanley. Yes. Yeah, so that that's been occupying some back bandwidth and ruminations and especially since, you know, we actually got to see him. Oh yeah. On on a couple of the Marvel days at AT&T Park. Um if you weren't uh if you weren't basically just trying to focus on your very survival, I would have expected you by now to find that photo that you took of him where you stumbled in front of him and snapped it right in his face. <laughs> that, that was so great. <laughs> I'll still remember his reaction. I'm like, Stan, I love you. <laughs> and, and he has this like, like hey, like, total, <laughs> a total Fonzie look. And it was, uh, it was probably in my top <laughs> 20 days of, or at least top 20 moments of my life. Well, I was there. So that's yeah. obviously it's going to be in that list. Well, and, and it was your birthday. Yep. And, what we're referring uh, to is the uh, you you generally give me uh, as a birthday gift the uh, the VIP package for the Marvel Day at the Giants uh, San Francisco mm-hmm. Giants Stadium, and for a couple of these, Stan was shown up. Uh, most recently, he wasn't, but in that particular instance, because we were you know they do a little Q and A session over on one side of the VIP room, but you and I would always be sitting towards the you know the the towards the back of that space to get some breathing room and just having just working on our beers as fast as we can and and, 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 all, all, the food, and yeah. all the food that we can and stuffing it in bags that we can sneak onto the Stop field. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, confirm nor deny that anyway. Uh, and in this particular instance, he was, you could see the crowd surging because he was moving through from the private elevator over to where the Q and a was. And you were off to get the, that round of beers. <laughs> he stepped right in front of him. Love you, Stan. <laughs> it was, it was, it was just and your absolute... photo looks like it was professionally shot. Like he's just right in your face. You know, he, like literally, he was eighteen inches away, and yeah. I'm like, I love you, Stan. And like, it, and it couldn't have gone any better. Like, it, it was just uh, fantastic. If you had done that to Mila Kunis, for example, which would be a close second, as far as I'm concerned, her bodyguards would have side tackled you at that moment. Yeah, she wouldn't have tackled me. No, they would have, the, the, that would be the desired end state, but that would not have happened. It would have been a 300-pound sumo wrestler with Samoan jiu-jitsu uh, jumping on me, and that would have been it. Like, you would, good night, you would, good night, you would have been taken out by uh, in the in the pivotal moment, like uh, Bullseye, as we're going to talk about. Exactly, like the the, the whatever uh, the king of the Nazgul. Yes, coming That's over, right. and yeah, here we go. Smash mouth. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, poor Stan. You know, it took me two days to think about what I wanted to say because, and and part of that resistance was that my feed was just exploding with people posting, like a lot of the cosplayers and con people posting photos with him and people who um, just people I know from my regular life um, who were expressing those. Um, fond memories of him and and also Marvel Comics and what it meant to them, which was really neat to me because, you know, a lot of my normal friendship group, it doesn't dovetail particularly with my art world stuff. And so mm-hmm. that was interesting to see. Of course, the art side of my social media was was just all about Stan Lee, but also like these regular folks that I'd never talked to about comics before were expressing that, which I thought was really great. And so I, I ended up just saying, you know, it says something that I have some pretty good friends around me that all my feed is is uh, is posts about Stan Lee and then those weird um, targeted ads from Chinese sellers on Instagram, you know. But otherwise, yeah. it was all Stan Lee stuff, and I think that was really great. No, the, the uh, I'll tell you what was really impactful is to me is reading all the folks that interacted with them um, from the the MCU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, had a really poignant. Chris Evans, too. For Chris Evans as well. Um, and, it, you know, it just goes to show that he was just a really great person. You, and you got that uh, from every interaction, I think, that he really didn't have. I, well, maybe Kirby would have a different. <laughs> well, okay, we'll get to that. Yeah. But so yeah. my my sense of him from the cons has been, and you saw that in the Q and A too that we would watch. But my sense from from at being at the cons with him. So I'm a vendor, and he's a vendor, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's mm-hmm. a celebrity, he's, but he's there for business, and I'm there for business. So um, you know, Chris will go, and sometimes if it's a celebrity that he really wants to talk to, or in particular if it's someone he's drawn, he might run over there and take a break and have me watch the table and he'll go and talk to them and get a signature or something or a photo. But generally speaking, I have not done that. As you know, the only time I've even approached anyone at a show was Cass Anvar from mm-hmm. Expanse. And even then it was before the show when we were setting up. Um, so I never actually went and said, you know, Hey, Stan Lee, do this and that. But I always would watch him. And in one particular case at Rose city comic con a few years ago, my aisle abutted the edge of the celebrity aisle and I could see him for the most part, you know, his handlers would sort of block him and then they would do some stuff with the staging. But, but I would see him in the setup and I kind of hear him talking because it's a very distinct voice, you know, and uh, he 100% loved what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I took some comfort in that given all of the elderly elder abuse allegations and the problems that, you know, even if you hadn't heard anything like that, the problems you would expect would be coming up if someone who's in their 90s is doing conventions, which exhaust me at 45, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was it was a consolation to me that he so honestly loved talking to fans and being up and uh, and being part of that process, even well beyond. I mean, he's making money doing that, but or people were on him, but he was doing it because he loved it, right? Yes, and. Uh, I like that. I took solace in that. Um, I think, I mean, there's controversy with Stanley. I mean, there's like you, you alluded to with Kirby. I mean, he's, he's a, um, the best known example in comics for people who are familiar with the industry that of the guy that's the hype man and the pitch guy and the, the one who has the charisma and the drive and the management, um, entrepreneurial spirit necessary to make things happen but did it on the backbone of designers who were actually creating the things. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, and so there's a lot of pushback a little bit. Um, I, well, a fair amount of pushback on him over the years from people who, as we become more aware of the plight of these work for hire folks who don't get their due, particularly because he would take credit for it. <laughs> it's not like this is an accident. It's not like, no, no, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he's saying I created all this stuff and, you know, okay, you look into it and you realize, yeah, this was a, a product of a number of things. But at the same time, these, this industry wouldn't be what it is if he wasn't, you know, being a huckster and he wasn't, you know, maneuvering this into something meaningful. And what he did with Marvel, particularly early on, uh, compared to what was happening at DC and, and, and such. I mean, I mean, it's pivotal. I mean, he, he is the driving force as to why Marvel was starting to write stories about the plight of um, 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 disenfranchised people in the United States, particularly people of color and, and you know, women. Um, you know, he, he, he was pushing really hard on a lot of that stuff and making Marvel tell stories about real people dressed as superheroes as opposed to the, um, the pantheon of gods that DC was doing. Mm-hmm. So his he really is as important as it always seems like he is. It just, it is a little muddy when you look at, you know, some of that, some yeah. of the accreditate, um, how people are accredited. And, and I like to think that in the future, that's going to be more and more common that we're going to see, um, people like Kirby and Ditko and stuff start to get more and many others start to get a little more credit for what they're doing. I mean, at least he's not like, um, uh, Kane for, with Batman who did everything in his power to completely, um, erase Bill Finger from existence and Bill Finger had the personality to let that happen but you know yeah. I don't know anyway but he's he, he was just a sweet man and uh, he will be missed I'm just relieved that the elder abuse which I know was happening is done well and, and I, yeah all the people that were like circling in like vultures if the if those reports are correct then I'm not gonna but there was enough of it I couldn't tell you who was in the right at any given yeah. time and who was really doing the, who was taking advantage and who was trying to protect him because it's really murky. But I can tell you that he was, I mean, just from what I saw at the shows, there was some shady stuff going on about how he was being um, insulated like a child. Yeah. We're doing yeah, yeah. on top of him. Yeah. I didn't like it. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, so yeah, that was Stanley. And also in the same day, um, and with much less fanfare, the voice of how of the Hal 9000 died. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tough which, break to die on the day Stan Lee dies. But, you know, <laughs> when, it rains it pour, when it rains, it pours. Yeah, well, posterity's for the living. Right. I mean, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, pretty interesting. And of course, Veterans Day, too. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's A lot weird. of other people died. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and then. Uh, yeah. It, this one was a little more tainted than others, given the hundred year um, anniversary for the end of World War One, and then um, you know who going over and doing you know what. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Well, let's let's transition to a positive piece of news. Well, no, but what what was your little moment that's occupying your bandwidth? Well, that's what I'm saying. Let's transition to another one. Okay. I'll tell you. Okay. Um, I, I'm excited about news coming out about the Mandalorian. I have high hopes about that series. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm thrilled at the idea that it has a, an operating budget on a per episode basis that approaches that of many movies mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and the way it's being set up, um, somewhat as an anthology and the kinds of 
um, creative power behind the scenes on it is giving me a lot of hope. Um, I like the subject matter. And uh, we had two casting confirmations this week that, that I liked. Um, the most important of which was Pedro Pascal, who you know I love. Mm-hmm. Um, at, you know, apparently being revealed as the Mandalorian. So that's super exciting for me because I love the guy. And then also, um, you know, Gina Carano, uh, who was in Deadpool and, of course, was in that Steven Soderbergh movie. Uh, she's an ultimate fighter or whatever she was, um, not an actress, right? And she kind of fell into mm-hmm. this. Um, I really liked her in Deadpool. And the fact that she's been cast makes me think that she's going to be, and I hope, She's going to be a an interesting type of female character in this show. I don't feel like you cast that actress for a fairly marginalized damsel in distress role. Yeah. Right? So uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I think that sounds exciting. Good. What about you? Optimisms? Uh, I'm optimistic, but uh, I'm gonna be the I'm gonna pull the Missourian uh and and be the in the show me state. <laughs> I love to be. I love being the optimist on our podcast, man. Yeah, and it's so. Uh, we need one. Yeah, in every other aspect of my life, I'm always the the cheerleader. You know, rah rah team. We're only down by fifty points. <laughs> um, but, but you you outpace me. Uh, <laughs> Plus, you're old. You're old enough to say rah rah and mean it. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I know what it actually means. So. Yes. I, yeah, it's it's not something I take lightly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what does it mean? <laughs> rah, rah. Yeah. <laughs> now you're gonna put me on the spot. Um, I always thought it was just a. Uh, I hear you cheer. typing away. Don't do that. <laughs> you put yourself up as this multi generational. No, no, I don't. I have no idea what rah rah means. I just know it means something serious. Well, it's it's a it's a callback to um, the chanting of the ancient Egyptians, right? As they were. It's not what? No, that's raw. raw. No, that's raw. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like it'd be uh, WWE raw, but we like it so much we say raw 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 raw. You don't mean it. You don't mean it unless it sounds like a roar. The sun god loves the chanting, man. So uh, that's what I've heard. Yeah. He's, he's a very insecure God. Well, and you know, on uh, not along with that, I mean, there's just been a lot of uh, um, sort of more formalized, uh, con- well, confirmation of things that are happening for this Disney streaming service. This is called what they're calling it Disney plus. That's what they've arrived at, which I guess is better than some things and worse than others in terms of naming. But um, one of the other things they said is they're because um, they're, they're putting, some Marvel stuff on there and some Star Wars stuff on there. And they said that they're going to do another live action series and it's going to be based on, um, cash in, what's his name? Cash in Andor. Yeah. From, something Di- like that. Diego Luna from rogue one. And you know, you and I big fans of rogue one. Um, I will absolutely 100% be stoked on pr- rogue one prequel stuff. I mean, that's yeah. that. See, there are certain parts of the timeline that they have abused. They just keep going back to the well, but there are certain things that I think they've done really well. And I loved the design work and sort of the world building they were doing in rogue one. And I love the idea that we're going to see, um, some of this shady stuff that he was doing because he was a shady guy as a rebel, as as a rebel leader. I mean, he was an assassin. So I'm really interested in seeing where that goes. So that's exciting. Death troopers, more death troopers, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, and then on the Marvel side, what they they 
they started making some confirmations on things that have been rumored for a while. Like there's going to be a Loki series and there's going to be a, a Bucky and Falcon series. Um, really? I missed that. Yeah. I'm enthused about, I'm more enthused about the latter than the former, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how a Loki series is going to work. I like him a lot, but I'd like him as a, as a foil or as a side character in a thing. I don't know about a show focused on Loki. Yeah, he's really not that kind of sympathetic uh, leading individual, right? But even if he's, but even if it's done like an antihero and he's just cruising around being a dick, I don't know that that's going to be a good narrative structure. I don't know that I like that. I saw mm-hmm. one thing tweet. It was tweeted by um, you know someone I know from the con world, and they would they said that their proposal was that they roll through various interpret various. Uh, um, Nordic interpretations of the Loki myth, all the different stories that um, that have been told, and how mm-hmm. wackadoo there are, and put him in them, you know, because that's some really weird <laughs> stuff, right? And uh, I thought that might be interesting, but they wouldn't do that. But uh, but the Falcon, the Falcon and Bucky thing is interesting. I mean, they paired them because they had good chemistry in Civil War, but. Um, the assumption, at least from what I see online from people, is that it's going to be a buddy show about these guys working together. But I have a different thought. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if it's going to be a battle for the shield, whether they're they're vying for the mantle after Steve Rogers dies. Because hmm. in the comics, both the Falcon and Bucky have been Captain America's. And I really like the Bucky version, and I did not like the Falcon version. And uh, I think that would be an interesting story to tell, you know, because they both, in, especially in the comics world, but even in the MCU, they mm-hmm. both are um, protégés. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something that they've they've done in the comics fairly well, which is, you know, not just with him, but with other characters, too. It's, you know, who... Who just simply decides who takes on the mantle when, when a major sort of franchise character passes on or gives it up, right? Mm-hmm. If they don't have the opportunity to kingmake, um, why is it a foregone conclusion that one person or the other takes it on or would want to take it on? So, Well, I, I would assume it's mainly opportunism. Yeah. Well, but the, with the Captain America thing, it's all about this patriotic symbol and there has to be a guy. There has to be a Captain America. But, 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 but who... Who anoints that and who gives it out? That's what I'm saying. But if they believed in him so much and they believed in what he did, then they would believe in the idea of his uniform as a symbol that people need. And what's interesting about that is in the MCU, they have taken the path of showing him go nomad and stay there. Like he never had – I mean maybe something happens in in, in part four that – that brings this aspect of the character back, but we haven't seen that thing where he rallies and comes back and is a symbol to the people again. Right. Mm-hmm. He's been, he's been disenfranchised from the government, ripped the, ripped all the labels off his uniform. <laughs> so running around in the shadows. So, you know, the symbol of captain America in the pre snap, uh, MCU was not there anymore. Right. But it's not like, uh, you know, Molnir that you have to be worthy and noble yeah. and everything else to even lift it up. So, I mean, if, if somebody's opportunistic and gets it, but yeah, well, no, I yeah. mean, you're right. That's what I'm saying. It seems like it'd be a more complicated story, more interesting, yeah. be more gray area to it. There was yeah. a rumor. There was a rumor that, um, 
Well, it's not even a rumor. It's one of those things where the actor does it. But John Cena has been posting a lot of images of Captain America's shield, mm-hmm. which seems like, you know, the pitch, you know, the actor pitch that happens. Mm-hmm. And everyone's sort of kind of blowing it off. But the thing that I liked, and I actually like that guy fine, but um, what I realized was there's a character from the comics that um, that was uh, pretty interesting. It's called U.S. Agent. Are you familiar with him? Mm-mm. So, well, he was one of the replacement caps when he's had divorced himself from the country and gone nomad. Uh, this happened two or three times in the, in the, in the books, but in this particular instant, this instance, this guy was a real, um, uh, jingoistic gung ho, aggressive, heavily propagandized, um, Patriot. And mm-hmm. when Captain America came back and took the shield again or whatever, this guy was spun off and became U.S. agent, and so he has a darker version of the of the uniform. It's black, white, and red, and he's their more um, he's their more militant and follows orders and just really sort of the government's man guy. And he's still operating even as Captain America's operating. He's called U.S. agent. So um, I could see Cena as that guy <laughs> because mm-hmm. the guy was roided out and really just really. St- very um very jarhead you know what i mean that 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 motif the strong jawed scowling uh marine kind of look so the jarhead jarhead yeah. yeah so anyway but um i don't know it'd be interesting to see what they do i think they'll, they'll have a plan no confirmation on scarlet witch yet but um i think that that one has more legs than than uh than the loki thing did but yeah it will, it'll be interesting to see how how those all work mm-hmm well, here's the thing, and this relates to what we're going to talk about later and some of the letdown of the previous Netflix series to some degree. I'm still very thankful for the Netflix Marvel stuff, and I wish it would continue, but but, but, but they haven't pulled the plug on all of it. Well, they are going to, though. I mean, they yeah. totally are. But the thing is, I think one thing um, I was reading about how Daredevil Season 3, which we'll be talking about, mm-hmm. how its viewership was low. And how there was this fatigue from people that were polled about it. And part of it was this, it came a month after Iron Fist. And Mm -hmm. also it was that all of the Marvel Netflix shows were long, but they kind of spun their wheels. And that there's, in the bigger picture, divorced from the Marvel Netflix stuff and more just the Netflix model. I think people are burned out by the binge watching thing. And with these shows there's this pressure and I feel it I don't know if you do I feel Mm -hmm. this pressure that when it comes out I feel like somehow I gotta get to it I gotta watch it so that things don't get spoiled and and, because these people spoil not just fans but like reviewers will spoil the whole season the day after it launches because they've got a they've got a reporter nominal reporter just watching the whole thing as a binge and then they write about it and it really irritates me Mm-hmm. So I feel that pressure, and then I also feel the pressure, like, if you don't watch it in a timely fashion, it's become, you know, for, like, what we do, right? We're not going to talk about it. So, I don't know. I, I I have to feel like that maybe there is something to the fact that the binge, the binge model hurts these shows now, when it was once an exciting thing, and I hope that the Disney service does not use it. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to approach it, right? I think BBC, if you... So to me, what I think would be a really good approach for Marvel to take with these shows is to do limited series of like six episodes. Right. Right. Short season. Series. Short, season, short, short series, short season 
and um, really take the approach of if you're going to make uh, like a two and a half or three hour movie. Yeah. What would be the arc? What would be the story? Because there were, and we're going to talk about this later, but like there are points in the Marvel series on Netflix where there are episodes that are just absolutely fucking fillers. Absolutely. Right. Right. And, and, and for people, so I think we're also spoiled because you have such a strong cinematic presence for the MCU. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you get kind of conditioned on what the pacing should be, what the character development should be and what the spectacle should be and what the payoff should be. And, you know, part of the allure of Jessica Jones at the beginning was that it was kind of the antithesis of that. Yep. Right. But at the same time, it's not just MCU. It was the Netflix model early on was very exciting. Stranger things did not. But but I think season two is still going strong for stranger things. Um, what, What was that? I thought the season two of Stranger Things was really damn good. And I thought most yeah. of the other folks thought the same thing. But what I'm saying is Stranger Things, not a Marvel Netflix. Right, right. But Stranger Things is another show that patterned on us this very high expectation that you could have many episodes. You will you will finish. Our expectation was that these these Netflix shows should be an N plus one problem, that we should be watching them and be frustrated when it's over because we wanted more. And right. And 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 Daredevil season one was like that. Jessica Jones season one was like that. Stranger Things was like that. And then um, partially, I think, due to the, the creative team choices, but and partially due to just the not having enough there there. They locked themselves into a format that wasn't sustainable. Like you say, if they were like Defenders was more powerful than. And you recently watched it, right? But Defenders was better than it could have, than it might have been, uh, because they compressed it. Exactly, nine and episodes or something like that, or ten. No, I thought it, I thought it was eight or eight. Yeah, I yeah. mean, <laughs> that goes a long way. And when you have to say about a product up for about projects like this that less is more, that's not a good sign. Agreed, but unlike unlike Stranger Things, right? That exists as its own entity and own thing. Yeah. Right. There is nothing to compare that to. Right. In, you know, other than the copycats now. Whereas for Marvel, you've got yeah. what, like a, a $10 billion juggernaut. Right. That, that has saturated the market and in a positive way, but also kind of sets expectations for the viewership on what a Marvel thing looks like well and you know you you bring up a good point even the less well-received marvel movies do very very well and they're yes. and they're criticized but they get a lot of people that come out to them and also uh one of the things we like about the marvel stuff on netflix is it looks cinematic even if it's smaller in scale right which is why i don't feel like we have the same connection to like the marvel abc stuff or even mm-hmm. the mar i mean i really liked runaways but again, it has a different vibe. That's that's a Hulu. Right. It has a different vibe in terms of its um, its visual style and its uh, aesthetic and its yeah, creative yeah, component. It, yeah, but, yeah. But particularly the the ABC stuff, um, Shield, and 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 then of course Hor- the, the disaster that was in Humans. The Netflix stuff looks legit, even when it's spinning its wheels, and then you get more frustrated because of that. Mm-hmm. Your expectations are high, right? Yeah. Well, 
So, remains to be seen. I'm just hoping that the Disney Plus is not doing uh, the binge. I hope that they put stuff on on a weekly basis. Yeah, agreed. I like the... Um, I like the approach, and this is uh, um, something I associate with HBO, but they, I think they took their cues from the BBC on this. I liked how HBO had two or three, they would have two or three shows that were really, really great genre, genre shows, and they were not super long seasons, but they would basically share the same time slot. So, you know, you would have your Game of Thrones for X number of weeks. And mm-hmm. it would be done. And then Westworld would start. And then you'd have Westworld for X number of weeks and it would be done. And then True Detective would start. And so it's fresh because it changes. But it's weekly. It's not binge. But they also don't feel the need to f- do filler. If anything, it's the opposite, right? They're not giving right. us enough of some of those things. But I would love to see them take that approach in the Disney service too on the new content. Because if you were to put... I think there's a saturation problem with with Netflix in particular, but also with Hulu. I think and Amazon and HBO and Cinemax, they're all they're all producing some and uh, and AMC and all these guys. They're producing so much content that there's that burden of choice problem, right? Yeah, but 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 I just want to you know throw a comment out there that we've never been so fortunate. You're absolutely with the, true. With, with, the, with the programming options and the quality of that programming content, like it, no, you're it, right. is, it, it is amazing. The problem is, is that it's a saturation. Well, that's what I'm saying. So imagine the Disney thing. I'm reaching down. Oh, I'm freezing to death in my garage. So um, I'm covering my feet with shirts <laughs> because when I put my heater on, I have a heater down here, but then it, it burns the hair off my um, legs. But I'll just do that. Oh, is that why you're going bald down there? Uh, I thought oh. it was. Uh, I thought it was uh, mange. The, um, um, it could be mange. Uh, there are squirrels but, but, and raccoons and possums in my yard. <laughs> but what you need is that uh, giant's blanket that I bought you at the game. It's out of reach, man. I know. It's, it's right <laughs> up there. And that was so sweet. It was one of those marble days that we did. Yeah. And I, I rode there from Marin, and then it was very cold and windy and rainy. And I was in shorts because <laughs> I rode 40 yep. miles. And you, <laughs> you went to get beers, and you came back with a giant's blanket. I was like, "Oh, it's the best date ever!" And, and beers, and, and beers. beers. Yes, you did blankets and beers. It wasn't either or; it was both. I mean, that is how much of our country dates, anyway, is blankets and beers. Yeah. So, yeah, that was totally good. I'm just saying, look, if you look at the Disney model, and you imagine it launching next year or whatever it is, and they say, you know, it's like that pops up and it's like Scarlet Witch and Loki and Mandalorian and this and that all at once plus all of their pre-existing IP there's going to be this burn like even if they're weekly there's going to be this like holy shit I got to watch all of those right but if they if they if they stagger it out and say it launches with the Mandalorian and then after the first series of Mandalorian they open up with the Loki right I think that's that they have the ability to take their time because of all the IP they bring but all I also, the other stuff comes too. Yeah, I agree. But I also think we're reaching this point where the the binge watching you're seeing some blowback from that type of behavior. Yeah, right. And especially on the the, the saturation point from content and creativity. Um. So, you know, the I think there is something 
to the HBO model where you have these this string of really kick-ass shows that occupy every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Right. or 10 p.m. or whatever it is, right. or that block. Like, uh, And the same thing with uh, NBC back in the 90s and late 80s with must-see TV on must Thursday night. TV. They right? define that term, and it's, uh, it's exactly what we're talking about. Right, and so... And it also gives you a vehicle to to stretch the content out, maximize revenues from advertising, Absolutely. because now you've got this block that you can just rotate programs in and out, and it becomes its own its own. I think it's great. Yeah, the I, HBO I do too. model works great to me. Because I'll tell you, uh, there are I've had several occurrences while I've been homebound and stuck in a hospital room for six days and oh. watching content on Netflix. Like I'll get really excited about a show that I see on Netflix, like the first two episodes. And then I, I binge watch it and I just, and, and at some point it, there's just some kind of immune response where I'm like, Oh Jesus Christ, give me a break. And I, I think that's also symptomatic of what you're seeing on the Marvel approach on TV is that the, the other than when they release the shows temporarily, People just take them like a big, like a, like a python eating a Volkswagen, and uh, and, 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 and a python, a cyber python. Yeah, but, but it, it 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 there's a point where that is uh, it encounters a period of diminishing returns. Well, okay, but here's the problem, and I think I, I think this is the deal. I think that the binge watching phenomenon works if the content is linear and manageable and, 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 um, and keeps you going. So, okay, here's what I'm getting at. So that, um, that's what I'm saying. I watched six, six or eight episodes. Okay. More manageable. Look at the first daredevil season. It was the new thing, right? It was the first of the Marvel Netflix stuff. So it's brand new. So you could binge that whole thing. I mean, I didn't sit down and watch 10 episodes at once, but I watched, you know, three a night or whatever it was. Right. When it's new enough, when it has, um, content that is uh, that is vibrant enough to sustain you over multiple hours without you getting burned out, binge watching works fine. So I've had experiences where binge watching was absolutely a thrill. The Daredevil season one was like that. Um, when I came to Game of Thrones, I came to it late because I was, I don't know, I was stalling on it because I was irritated that there was a dragon, uh, a Dungeons and Dragons show that housewives in Bent Ankle, West Kansas were into. And I was like, ah, so I wouldn't watch it. And then I finally broke down. What, what, do, you, what do you say about ankle vice? I what? said housewives in Bent Ankle, West oh, Kansas were watching it. So therefore, uh, that, that is apologies a really, to everyone in West Kansas. Um, that is anyway. a really interesting string of words. <laughs> So anyway, the idea that that a mainstream audience was really getting really water cooler hopped up on Game of Thrones made me instantly turned off by it. So, or so I didn't watch it. And then three seasons in, I finally gave up, gave up, and I got the DVDs and I started binging a show that's not intended to be binged. Right? It was done as serialized television, but I watched the first three seasons in the course of two weeks, and I yeah, there, there I is a point where it becomes, it becomes punitive. Well, I couldn't breathe. It was so good. And uh, same again with Battlestar Galactica, another show that was not intended to be binged that I came to late because of my early rejection of the miniseries. And then I finally came back to the show and watched the first two seasons again in like two weeks. And same deal. Like I'm watching two and three episodes a night and forcing myself to turn off the TV at two in the morning. Like I'm screwed, you know, not intended to be binged. 
but the episodes were diverse enough or suspenseful enough that it made it um, retroactively bingeable. And I think the problem with, I think what's led to the pushback on the Netflix side is that with the Marvel Netflix stuff, as beautiful as it is, they created a format that if they didn't, that once the newness went away, it -hmm. became stale when you binge it. And what I mean by that is, and and we'll talk about this more, but what I mean by that is that uh, the Marvel Netflix stuff is set up like it's a play. There are three or four or five set pieces that are returned to so that characters can talk and have characterization and have some interesting things happen to them. But they always go back to these really well-realized sets. I mean, they're beautiful. They're very immersive. But they always return to them. Return to them. And that's not unique in television, right? Most television has limited number of sets. But the fact that they are binged and the fact that there's not a lot happening in a lot of the episodes and then something happens means Mm -hmm. that you find yourself getting that fatigue where you're like, and back to the apartment, and back to the office, and back to the apartment. And so then you become more more acutely aware that they're stalling or that there's not a lot of there there, and that's where it backfires. And I think if the binged product was linear and exciting the way Stranger Things was written, you can do that. Because you can watch four episodes of Stranger Things and be... And not be bored. Because something new happens in every episode of Stranger Things, right? But yes. if you watch, like, I mean, let's leave Iron Fist off the table. And you watch, you know, an episode, or uh, you watch uh, Luke Cage, for example. You can go two and three episodes and go, well, what happened? I can't really remember what what was the plot device in that string of episodes. Yeah. Because they're atmosphere and character, but they're not linear plot driven enough to allow you to string three of them together and feel like you you ended somewhere differently than you began right Mm -hmm. so anyway that's what I want to see if they're going to binge make it linear and if they're not then just piece it piece it out yeah agreed I I just think they'd also benefit from truncating it and making it more um, plot and character driven I like that idea. I really do. Right. Because I, 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 I think sometimes less is more. And I think uh, in these circumstances where you've, you've got this, to me, again, it's just managing expectations. And everybody has this um, sense of what a Marvel thing should look like in terms of pacing content and execution. And th- there were some episodes like in Luke Cage, season one, where I was like, why the fuck am I watching this? This does nothing for the character and and what they're supposed to do. It doesn't build towards a climax other than make the characters more robust and deep. And, and I get that. I, that has its own value, right? But, you know, I want to see him, like, messing stuff up and and becoming well, who he is supposed to be. And, right? Uh, well, so. and, 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 you know, there's like a whole, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole episode here that we could fill on what, where the MCU, well, no, where the ne- Marvel Netflix world, where their strengths and weaknesses lie. But definitely one of the weaknesses is where you don't have, um, you don't have tension because there's no scaled mm-hmm. threat level for the characters. This, which I mean, it, frankly, this leads into my concern about Captain Marvel, which I really want to th- want to love, and I hope it's going to be amazing. But they keep broadcasting that it's the 
you know, most powerful character in the MCU. And what we've seen from Superman is if it's a powerful character, it's not very interesting. Right. If it's a god, you can't hurt it, right? Well, Luke Cage has the problem of, you know, he's invulnerable for the most part. So he just sits there and knocks bolts around and bends some things and pushes some people through walls. And it was, and he was a bruiser, so that wasn't even uh, much interesting things happen. Wasn't even interesting uh, combat until someone does something unique to affect him. And so by season two, you're you're just begging for those, you know, special bullets and gas attacks and drowning and all kinds of things because you just Mm want to see him at peril in some way right and it's the same thing that affected iron fist he didn't have the he didn't have martial arts um acuity to rival fucking daredevil (laughs) so you know i mean you can sustain that stuff if you give them a reason if you if you believe that they are at risk and if you don't believe they're at risk it doesn't work Agreed. No number of hallway fights will work if they're not in peril. Yes. Speaking of in peril and and uh, metaphi- metaphysically the the hallway fight over and over and over again, uh, James Cameron has announced like eighty Avatar films. Yes, and like they're, at all one time. Be, they're all they're all going to be the best thing ever. Can you recall a time when a film series was was like filmed in tandem? And then released in sequence and was good. So when you say release in tandem, you mean all at once, like a big bowl? They were filmed in tandem and released in sequence. So Back to the Future, for example. It was the first one I remember as a kid where they did that. Right, but it was only the sequels that were filmed, right? Uh, right. And how did that turn out? <laughs> bad, but I would say uh, Lord of the Rings. Did you think that turned out well? Oh, my gosh. I think yeah, Absolutely. Speaking of not the Hobbit, yeah, I haven't seen the Hobbit. I also haven't seen probably the end of the Lord of the Rings. I've saw part of it. I saw the beginning of it. Yeah, uh, I think that was a masterful way right. to film that. I, I think the Hobbit was just a disaster because it was a disaster. But um, I really, it's I really good enough for one book. It's good enough for two, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Lord of the Rings was actually a trilogy, and then they turned it into three movies. Right, right. And and The Hobbit, it was the shortest book uh, by far of those of those four books, and they turned it into the trilogy of movies that I think was longer than Lord of the Rings director's cut. So they're making so, a, they're making a Lord of the Rings TV series, right? Uh, why, why is no? I know, I know. But why why have they not done anything with the Cimmerillion or Cimmerillion or whatever that is? Have you read that? No, and I know it was his son and some notes, but because it when is, has that stopped anybody? No, but it, I mean, you have to be such a sex god mm-hmm. and stud to read that. And I mean, it, it is it is not meant for mortal men. I'm being facetious and glib. Okay. That Both? it is it is only those folks that speak Elvish orc. And, um, ah. you know, the, the dark language of Mordor. It's that genre really porno. Yeah. I really want to get in that. Yeah, I get you. Okay. Right. Is it, it, I mean, I've, I've read them all, <laughs> um, including his, the, the most recent atrocity from uh, Christopher Tolkien. Uh, and it is just, there is no way you can transform that into a movie. A dog's lunch, but not a pre-dog's lunch. Still no, one of it, our it, best titles ever. Yeah, Thank you. I yeah, it, 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 it's, it's like 
it's not even a dog's lunch. It's like a possum's lunch. <laughs> a possum's lunch. Right. Speaking of which, I planted my winter crop, and you know what? All my lettuce is sheared off down to the down to the the base of the lettuce. Like it's just like sheared right <laughs> off. And I don't know if it's possums or raccoons or squirrels or what, but son of a bitch. <laughs> All right, back to our program in progress. So, okay, so I, my my perspective. Okay, Lord of the Rings. Maybe that's not a, okay. So you break my 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 theory. My theory was that it is. I think the only one I can point to that is a success. But but don't wouldn't you say that the Lord of the Rings series feels monotonous though? Anyway. Because it was all filmed at once, and it's one big, no. one long linear march towards Mordor. I mean, but but the, I, I think that's part of it, right? That if you let's say you, you had three years in between, you know, Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers, and and suddenly you know, like Frodo, his nutsack dropped and his voice dropped three octaves. Um, no offense, Elijah Wood, if you're out there listening. The um, still waiting. It, it it would change. Like if you take a look at the continuity. So let's say Star Wars, where they did, you know, episodes four, five, and six, where they took time off. There was actually time off in between those movies that compensated with the passage of time in our continuum. Right. Right. So time enough for people to have car accidents and have it written in. Right. Right. You know, suddenly Luke, uh, he's not a mimbo. He's just, you know, messed up. The, um, whereas Lord of the Rings, it is, it is one long slog, right? Well, but that's the thing. Lord of the Rings was, um, you know, materially, it's the same. It's the same appearance, the same world, the same story. Just stretched. It's like they just filmed nine hours of shit. I mean, you love that shit, but it's very similar, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, mm-hmm. I think the hope of. I mean, so they do this all at once so that they have everybody together and they can just bang it all out. But I think the only way it's going to be successful is if each of the films, the content that they're filming, that's that's packaged into individual movies if that content is different enough that they so that they filmed them all in at one time to make use of all the actors at the same time and the sets and whatever but they keep them different enough so that when they actually are released they don't feel like you watch nine hours of the same thing gettysburg the movie i remember they had an intermission um you know and 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 instead you have you know three different movies with three in you know diverse settings or stories or whatever else. And I don't know whether that's going to happen. Now they've, they've shown in the avatar stuff that they're, they've put a bunch of, uh, well, someone has put together a bunch of names for movies that sound as generic as you possibly could get. It's just, Mm -hmm. I feel like you're in the used section of the bookstore and you're like, what is this even, what was happening in 1978 that allowed this to happen? Right. Some of those, some of those titles for the movies just look terrible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But but I mean at the same time, I mean he's he's gotten flack for Avatar because he says, Oh, it's gonna be this multi film thing and it's gonna be so amazing and it's gonna be the best thing ever and it's so expensive and everything else and and so there's pushback to it. But I don't know about you, I saw Avatar and I thought that was I mean, it was the best adaptation of Fern Gully you could ask for. <laughs> right? I mean there it wasn't everything that he thought it was in his mind but it wasn't un, not entertaining. No, I thought, I thought, I thought it was a, a stunning piece of movie making. I, I don't think that you could, I don't think that you can watch Avatar without being aware of the technological innovation that was involved to make it, which is Agreed. an interesting problem. 
it's a different version. I remember talking with my father, stepfather, father-in-law, something. Um, we went and saw it together, and he has grown into <laughs> a fairly conservative Republican guy, but he wasn't originally that. And so we walked out of the theater of seeing Avatar together, and he's like, wow, you know. And he saw it as a progressive or like a liberal propaganda movie. <laughs> and, I was, and I came out of there like, they, you know, industrialization and, mil- you know, you know, military industrial complex destroying natural resources, terrible. And he was like, oh, it's propaganda, you know? So we had very different interpretations of the same film, but, but we were, <laughs> but we were, but we were, we were immersed in it. Right. And mm-hmm. I, and I felt like, well, it was a new version of the uncanny Valley. Like I couldn't watch avatar without thinking about what I was watching. Like that they mutated with CGI, these characters into the avatar characters, the literal and figurative avatars on screen and how the technology was developed in order to do that. Like I couldn't divorce myself from that when I was watching it. So now with the the next 17 or 79 avatar movies coming out, unless he invents, I don't know, the fourth dimension camera, what is there to, what is there to innovate? Right. So will the story be able to hold out, hold its own? Will the worlds be immersive enough and different enough from movie to movie to sustain our interest once the technology is already in place now. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not that unique anymore. I don't know. What do you think? Are you excited I think about it? I, 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 it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think I'm going to be open to outcome on that. Um, he's proven himself to more often than not be able to defy the odds and the naysayers and generate really good stuff. Um, but well, it, it's you know we'll we'll find out when we see it. What's your favorite James Cameron movie? Aliens. And what's your least favorite? <laughs> but the, the, the Titanic. The, <laughs> uh, all right, I you know everybody loves True Lies, but man, I had a t- I had a I had a tough time with that movie. Well, I, I think for for Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can't do any better than that. You take off your stockings one by one. I mean, all yeah, I could, all I could now, say. Now I'm going to have nightmares. Thanks. <laughs> oh. All I can say is, yes, she was, she was very well. She, she held up well, but at the same time I was like, what's happening? The only thing I can say about that movie that I took away is a cool bathroom scene. And, uh, also the sea harrier or the harrier, uh, combat was fun climbing all yes. over that plane and all that. But anyway, and, and, and he made, you know, Tom Arnold, you know, no, he relatable. Didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. <laughs> no, he didn't. It was terrible. Terrible. I, I think that's Tom Arnold's best movie. Well, that's not saying anything. <laughs> but still, Gilbert Godfrey could have been in that role. Maybe he should no. have. No. <laughs> Actually, I think he should have. Someone out there should do that. It's just a little uh, bit of retouching. Who is it? Uh, Pee Wee Ruben. Um, yeah, Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. He could have been in there. Like, oh, guys, let's go. Oh, <laughs> All right. And then uh, the last thing I have in. No, I have two more items really quickly. Um, Ridley Scott. He's so the alien, his alien prequel mess has been indefinitely Dude, postponed the, as he that, moves on to other things. Has lost his, he's off his noodle. I know. He's he's now committing to miniseries and ongoing television series and other films. But a bunch of stuff has come out in the last two days talking about um, 
what was supposedly in the works for and may still be in the works for his next film in that prequel series called Aliens Awakening or Alien Awakening. I got to tell you, even though it was a hot mess, I still would watch that movie. I would too, but wouldn't it just be called Awakening? Yeah, yeah, maybe. But but regardless, I, I would be there for that movie, even as a mess, even as it's a mess. Oh, I've seen, I've seen, like, literally, I've seen every alien property there is. Well, yeah. And including, and you, including, including, you know, what was it? Uh, it wasn't Requiem for me. What was it? Uh, <laughs> alien Resurrection, the Dead Disaster, Aliens versus Predator. I've seen every one of those. Well, but uh, you and I both saw his, we saw Covenant and we saw... Um, what was that? Covenant? Covenant. Covenant. And, like uh, Rampage? Ram, rampage. And then the other one. Uh, we we saw them both. Prometheus. Prometheus. <laughs> you know that should be the, <laughs> the box. other one. That should be the box set. Covenant. No, <laughs> Covenant and the other one. Covenant and that yeah. which shall not be named. But you know, Covenant and Prometheus. We both watched those and were. Um, I mean, you couldn't be more ambivalent, right? We came out of there fired up because it looked so amazing, and there were so many cool things happening at the same time. It was they were buckets of flaming shit. And uh, so, anyway, I would love to see Alien Awakening. They say the the script treatment that was being talked about just yesterday was that it's, uh, you know, it's David heading off to whatever that, you know, possibly to the, (laughs) it's going to lead to the moon from the original movie um, (laughs) and the space jock and all that. But at the same time, they say the engineers are after him for revenge after he committed genocide on their planet. And I'm thinking that must be an awful lot of engineers because no sufficient, no sufficiently advanced species is limited to one thousand two hundred people in a plaza, right? I mean, he only killed this many people, and they describe it as I destroyed their culture. So, you know, I'd like to imagine this this movie I, where Dave, David is hurtling through space, and there's like the you know the like Basson style fleet of yeah, engineers behind him, and, and like they they don't have any anti aircraft artillery, they don't have any defense mechanisms, okay. they don't have transponder codes that like make sure this isn't some bananas android coming down to saturation bomb them. Which is it, a, which is one of their possibles in their book in their little playbook, right? <laughs> yeah, I just I, uh, I know I know I just I'm saying no, I would still no, but, watch but the movie. I'm pretty sure that really Scott thinks that the population of planet Earth is only like 2,500 people, like yeah. who he sees in Malibu. Yeah. Um, and even even uh, even Star Trek six, the undiscovered country had the, oh, why? Why? had the uh, had the presence of mind to show the terraforming weapon, do this like instant, infinitely fast uh, wipe of the whole planet. You remember that? It was like yes. instantly it was like in the course of like 37 seconds, it terraformed the entire planet. They didn't even have the presence of mind to do that. No. It, well, like. Can I, while we're talking about planet wiping, yes, sir. you know, the more, the more I'm thinking about this, the, I have this cognitive fracture with, um, with infinity war. Yes. Right. Like when Thanos touches ground on earth. Yes. Right. And he's, if he's really getting irked, right. Yes. Why, why doesn't he just touch the stone to the earth and eliminate all organic matter? Like what they were going to do on Nova prime. Right. Why, why, well, we talked about that. We talked about that. I'm, I'm still not satisfied. I'm still not satisfied with what we came up with. Yes, yes. It, it irks me. Did he snap? Anyway. Half the, did he snap half the algae? No, but I mean, but if, if Rowan was going to do that uh, on Nova Prime, 
right? Yeah. Why can't Thanos just come down and like, boom, because he can use all the powers of the other stones independently. Right. He's not saving it for the one snap, you know. Uh, well, because so you, I just, you have the God problem. Each of those stones was powerful enough to wipe out sentient life in the universe, and he had all of them. So there was there was the problem of limited vision or limited um, will. He had a very narrow version in his mind of how it was supposed to go. So he didn't want to wipe out everything. He only wanted to wipe out half, not all. And he had to do it in a very specific way. He had to go there and he had to just, because he could have stayed on wherever, Planet X and snapped his fingers. He didn't have to snap anything, right? Yeah, and he didn't need, well, I mean, he had to go take out, you know, vision before he got the six. But But my point, though, is that he could have, even with any of the other gems, the time gem or whatever the hell they are, I've lost track. I'm not enough of a super fan anymore to be able to... Well, once you get the time Recall stone, once you go back to the beginning of the universe, well, that's what I'm saying. Bang, right. And get all six stones then. Right, 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 right. right. And right. why would you need six stones? Have one well, stone. He could have accomplished everything he wanted with a single stone. Yep, so there you go. I, enough said. Fuck Thanos. Well, <laughs> I saw scr- a few memes you, today that you, were you, about that, actually. You, you scrotum chin motherfucker. I will send them to you in a minute. Um, so, uh, the other, the last thing I was going to mention in our, in our segment here is, uh, that, uh, I, <laughs> what do you want me to say? Jesus? No, the game of no, Thrones yes. has been confirmed for April, 2019. At the same time, we've heard that the prequels are starting to be cast and they cast Naomi Watts in a principal role. And I thought that was pretty interesting. It's a good casting choice, but it's a, but it's also but, a very well, very role. recognizable one. But for what role? No, we don't know because it's a thousand years in the past or whatever it is, right? Yeah, but is it a Targaryen or you know? I hope it is. Well, anyway, yeah, she seems very Targaryen. But I mean, I just it, it's interesting that we're we're finally seeing the we're finally seeing the end of you know we're getting a date for the end of the current Game of Thrones, but at the same time. They're ramping up the prequel in a way that makes you excited for that too. So, but do you give any credence to this this rumor that's out there? Uh, no, Naomi Watts, I, I like, but there are, there are some rumors going out there that there will be a Game of Thrones movie. I would love a Game of Thrones movie. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine what they could do. In eight episodes, or whatever. No, but to take advantage of the format and time of a movie that they're not already doing in the show. Right? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe they'll film three movies all at the same time. <laughs> in a linear fashion, where each one's different? Yeah, non-linear fashion. <laughs> they'll, they'll do a flashback, a current and future version of it, just like Back to the Back to the Dragon. Back, to the, one, two, and back to the Back to the Dragon. How do you yeah. feel about Naomi Watts? Do you like her as an actress? I do. I do. Um... I mean, uh, uh, of that ilk, I'll always go with Nicole Kidman. But yeah, you know, yeah. That's me. yeah, are they still friends? Do you think? I have, I have, I am the least informed source on any of that. I, I remember a an Australian film, like an indie film, that Nicole Kidman was in, where she was in like an boarding school or an all girls school, mm-hmm. and Tandy Newton was her first film, and she got up on and like she was doing 
some presentation in front of the other girls in the girls school and she's just she's she's just uh she's just intoning out the lyrics to Tutti Frutti and I was like who is this incredible actress and who is this person and can she be in every movie and every film and every TV show ever and here we are Tandy Newton is like she has transcended those early roots of us of uh, Australian indie cinema and has become something totally different. I would rather watch a single Tandy Newton movie than ten Nicole Kidman movies. Oh yeah, uh, I'm comparing Naomi Watts and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I understand. But but okay, let's say between Zoe Saldana and Tandy Newton. Tandy Newton. Really? Yep. Okay. Hmm. Well, I mean. Uh, I, sorry, I was thinking Zoe Kravitz. <laughs> Zoe Saldana and Tandy Newton, that's a tough nut. I feel like we could share. <laughs> yeah, again, your string of words there just really, yeah. No. Let's talk about our feature presentation. Yes. Who are you? I'm Daredevil. We're here to talk about in our robots review, we're here to talk about a little show we like to call Iron Fist Season One. No, wait, no! that's not right. Daredevil, no! Daredevil Season Three. Yes, thank you. So you saw this all in a hospital bed with the Quaaludes, or did you see some of it on the plane, or what was the deal? No, I saw it all in the hospital bed in Yonago, Japan, uh, alternating between Demerol and some other drug I could never figure out. And did you uh, did you binge it, or did you watch it with other things in between, or how did you watch this? No, I binged it. I, it was pretty much all in the span of a day and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I watched maybe two episodes a night. Yeah, no, I know. Um, I did like four episode blocks, like one in the morning, one four, one four episode block in the morning, afternoon, and then the next morning. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So there was... Um, to me, contextually, it was interesting that this came so quickly after Iron Fist Season 2, because Iron Fist Season 1 was very poorly received, and for all, I mean, there's no one that's going to say that, that um, there was much redeeming about that series. I don't think it was as bad as everyone says now, but I think it, there was nothing redeeming in the big picture other than the introduction of um, Jessica Henwick's Colleen Wing, mm-hmm. and particularly mm-hmm. her relationship with uh, with um, uh, Daughters of the Dragon. What am, I, what am I trying to say? Misty Knight. So, I mean, that's all you. That was your takeaway from Iron Fist season one. Is can we just have them as a show, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had Daredevil, which sort of downplayed or softened the negative reception of Danny Rand and that actor portraying him. Pulled pulled together some other stuff, and more importantly, like we talked about earlier, compressed it into eight episodes or whatever, and made it more made it feel more urgent. Mm-hmm. So we have Iron Fist season two. We had uh, Luke Cage season two, which just like season one had a lot of spinning its wheels plus some really good set pieces, and then we had Iron Fist season two, which I still argue was much better than season one. Had some real strong points to it, but. For all of the psychological work I was doing in my head to be positive and find the good things about season two that I liked and you know, try to figure out where it stood and, you know, like, where, where do we go from here kind of thing. And then, like, a few weeks later, I start Daredevil season three, and I'm instantly reminded what all of these other shows are missing. Mm-hmm. 
Daredevil has a reason for being. Like, that show has a story that feels natural and urgent to it. And with the exception maybe of Jessica Jones to some degree, none of the other ones feel... They feel like they've, they didn't earn their place. They feel like they are happening because they have to happen. And I enjoy them for that. But Daredevil is, it was a reminder of how much better that is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Right? It was, it it was orders of magnitude more interesting in its first episode than all of that Iron Fist season that I just finished. Well, I'd say except for, to me, Daredevil, all seasons of Daredevil are better than anything else other than Jessica Jones season one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just not even close. Well, I mean, I think structurally uh, Daredevil season two was a little bit um, disjointed because had they done what you described earlier, if they had made a series, which was the Punisher series, and then they made a series, which was the Electra arc. Mm-hmm. then I think that it would have been more palatable. But because they did one half with Punisher and then one half with Elektra, it had this, I don't know, it was compositionally disjointed a little bit. But season three returns to a focus that season two didn't have, even even while I really enjoyed season two. Yes. But I, I, I it may have been disjointed, but I think it was necessary because they were, they were stitching together a lot of different arcs in the canon. Yeah, but what? So that's the problem, though. If you go back to season two, couldn't they have just done a an eight or nine episode season that was deal, him dealing with Punisher? Because him and Punisher, and then him and Elektra in the Hand, were both very important thematic stories for um, mm-hmm. pressure testing his ideology. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we needed those each to share a season. I felt like each of them could have been more carefully crafted as a season. Maybe, but I, I think they were trying to get to the point where they could move to the Kingpin arc and and Bullseye. Yeah, but right? that could and have I, been I, four. Right, but I, I think they I think they probably understand that they probably have a five year term limit on this yeah i guess maybe i right. just i don't know i just felt and, like and, that that yeah. is what the, my takeaway from season two was like oh shit i could have used season two felt like it could have been two seasons agreed but i think there were i think there were they had some other drivers that they were trying to meet yeah and i think they were trying to get punisher launched for the first time ever as a successful standalone property period yeah sure um and you know, just like they had the Luke Cage arc and Jessica Jones, it was, you know, this intense four or five episode thing. And then pop, he's off on his own. Yeah. And I think they're trying to do the same thing with Punisher because in, in the comics, right, Daredevil and Punisher really deep, you know, as deep as Kingpin and Bullseye and Daredevil. Yep, for sure. Well, yeah. and, and a side note, the way you guys were talking um, several recordings ago about how I needed to watch these other Punisher <laughs> franchise uh, pieces – I have managed to get a hold of the Ray Livingston, mm-hmm. is that his name? I've yep. got that one, and I'm ready to watch it. I've got it ripped and ready to go. But what's really frustrating me is the one that I wanted to see, which I know is not the best one, but I wanted to see the Thomas Jane one, and I cannot find that. There's, like, one yeah. way of getting it, and it's it's some, really tough. It's a it's really, really shady tough. streaming service to get it, whereas, uh, you know, like I tried from Netflix and everything else, I've 
I tried a pay-per-view. There's no way to get the Thomas Jane version, which really pisses me off because after Expanse, all I want is Thomas Jane and everything, right? Yeah. Thomas yeah. Jane and Seinfeld, I'd watch that. But uh, anyway, so that's that's neither here nor there, I guess. So um, when uh, when Daredevil Season 3 started, I had a very negative... Um, I was coming in with negative expectations because the overly, well, I guess the overt Catholic imagery and the whole thing with his mom as a nun and in the comics, Karen Page ODing and all this stuff. I mean, this is seminal Daredevil, but it was my least favorite Daredevil stories of the, two, of the classic of the classic era of Daredevil stuff. In two. Hmm? In season two, that was your least favorite. No, no, I'm talking about leading into season three. Oh, right, the, right, right. You know, mom's a nun. He's being nursed back to health, mm-hmm. and then Karen Page is going to OD and all this other stuff, and everything's all about Catholicism and guilt. I just didn't. I was not super thrilled about that. Uh, so I went into the first episode, telling myself, like, you know what? It's just he's going to get the black suit again. <laughs> just wait for that, right? And it was it was a ballbuster from the beginning. It was fine. Mm-hmm. It's all about casting, right? Yes. But I also think it was, um, they kind of, they made it more about him than about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that was, that was a mercy. <laughs> it really was. And the rejection, right. his rejection of his Catholic roots. Yeah. While being, while being a con, being a convalescent in the belly of a Catholic church with all these statues around him and all rosaries hanging off every lampshade and all that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that actually thematically, um, had a purpose because yes. he, he was telling everybody that would listen that he was done playing games and he was just off to kill people. Um, he had to tell people that, right? And he kept saying it to convince himself of it. So in that sense, yeah. that made sense. I, I don't know. Yeah, so it, I was, it was more palatable but, than I thought it would be. But so to me, it was such an obvious and transparent plot vehicle to get him from, you know, his supposed crisis with Electra after Defenders, right? Yeah. That it was like, okay, we know where this would go. We know that he's going to have a moment. So to me, the, what I liked the most about it wasn't about his story and that necessary thing about coming to grips with Catholicism and whatnot it was more about foggy yes right and and getting to get their character a little bit more right uh and i also think that um deborah ann wall uh, uh what is it um betty karen right karen yeah getting her character a little more oomph was the most important part of that initial arc in season three she did say that if uh, daredevil gets a season four she really looks forward to more female characters and granted there was the side plot of typhoid mary in this but she didn't really get to interact much and she needs more she needs more female interaction and i think that's true it's a very male it's a very male story the daredevil series um but it's but it's also very and women uh, are and women are toxic in the daredevil world, right? So it's oh, yeah, all yeah. very Catholic. <laughs> well, no, because because it's you know that he's admitting to his weakness, and every time he he admits his weakness, then he gets torched. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> so betrayal is you know as Catholic as you know rosaries. So that's just uh, 
I mean, there's some very, I mean, there's some very transparent, to use your word, very transparent um, themes and issues at play in a lot of these stories. Uh, Spider-Man has Black Cat and Daredevil has Elektra. There are, and even, you know, X-Men had Rogue early on. I mean, there's this, this femme fatale where the bad girl is interesting well, Jean Grey. and Jean Grey. Jean Grey well maybe later Jean Grey but the the this particular device when you think about uh you know contextually these writers sitting in their rooms writing about the bad girl you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. it's a variation on the bad guy the bad boy in gothic romance novels right like mm-hmm. so i don't know there was a very um i think there's a very interesting thing about electra in season 2 and in the comics that this is a pure sexual energy being that's like him in skills, but has none of his um, ethical trappings and is trying to seduce him into taking a darker path. Not a dark path, but rather just a, I don't give a shit about the little people path, right? Well, um, well getting him to give up the thou shall not kill thing. Right. Electra was the bad girl from across the tracks that's trying to get you to sneak out of the house and do... Du- do some drugs and do some nasty shit and get in trouble with the law and all that other stuff. When you should be doing that with Jessica Jones. Well, <laughs> and so I think um, uh, I like that about season two. I like that he had her on one hand and then um, Karen Page showing up at his apartment. Like, where I was? Where's your moral compass? What are you doing? Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting. I think that's an interesting juxtaposition, and I enjoyed them. Um, at play at the same time in the same season. Um, when you get to season three, though, I didn't need five episodes of him convalescing, uh, but I did like that he was taken down a peg from injury. Because I really like when people who are very powerful have to suffer a ha- suffer a handicap, have to suffer a, um, a setback, and then find a way to work with it, work around it. I don't like when they recover. I don't like when they recover. I like when they compensate. Yeah, so the the thing to me with all that, and it was one of my biggest issues with uh, Dark Knight Rises, right? The instant, yeah. Yeah, that they they, they cure themselves by sheer will. Yes. Right? And it's not like, I mean, come on. You've got like a dislocated vertebrae. You can't walk in one season and then in one episode, and then 30 minutes later, you're climbing out of the well. Yeah, but yeah, it, well, and Dark Knight Rises, but yes, it was it was uh, right. unacceptable. But and, with Daredevil, and, though, his his injury was healing. Well, actually, didn't he like knock a, a like a snot rocket or something out, and then he had a little well, bit he, better hearing? He, yeah, he used the um, the 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 neti pot, right? Right, the neti <laughs> pot, which is which was actually kind of interesting. But what they showed throughout this throughout that season was that if he got hit in the head, he was super. He was right at it. It was the permanent injury, and he had to compensate for that. I like that. What he didn't do is build in, build in like uh, you know, there was no. He didn't. He didn't come to a solution about it. He just he just fought through it and hoped he didn't get hit in the head, which is not very smart. But yeah, because here's here's where I was taking that if they would have forced him back into the outfit, the daredevil, right? You know costume whatever you want to call it and that was a way to protect himself and maintain his ability and he was forced to go back to that thing that he gave up yeah i can see because, that right and i think that, that but, there I, was a missed but opportunity I really there that, 
but I really like. I mean, we'll get to this, but I really loved that the that he ref- that he had abandoned that. Well, I mean, he lost the suit <laughs> when he climbed out of the 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 mythical uh, sewer discharge of that building, which doesn't exist. Right. But but I love that he. It was right uh, next to Kunyan. Yeah, I. <laughs> I bet I. Remember, everything leads to di- dragon bones, by the way. Everything was about dragon bones in the end. The substance. <laughs> New York dragon bones. So um, I liked that the... I've been to that club. It's a really good club. <laughs> I liked that he abandoned the Daredevil suit when he abandoned the idea that he was... That he needed to even have a persona. That he had to be a guy that would f- strike fear in the hearts of the villains and be... Um, recognizable to people on the street, it was like he had he was done with all of it. He wasn't the daredevil as the identity or the alter identity to to Matt Murdock. He was now just a force of nature, and he didn't need any of that. He's just going to go back to the black, and he's going to go thematically. That worked. It was a great reason to put him back in the black, and I really loved it because that's what I loved most at us out of the daredevil stuff was that season one. Just that it's just he's a yeah. thug in black tactical gear. I love that. Yeah, but. I, so I, I guess I just have a come on man moment where oh. I mean he, he's, he's he's basically wearing you know what what I really liked about the defenders is when he took Jessica Jones sweater and put it over his head yeah uh, I thought that was really well done but I mean he's basically got a tube sock over his head and I mean come on man well what is it what is it about that you're trying to say so I would have found it much more compelling if he just, and I know this is against the canon, that he just went out and didn't wear a costume at all. Well, no, you're right. You're absolutely right about that in that he he still covered his head and he still wore black. And you can rationalize the black because he's in the shadow maybe, but you can't rationalize the headpiece if he doesn't – if he's given up Matt Murdock, he doesn't care mm-hmm. anymore. Right. And so I thought that would have been a much more compelling thing. And maybe it's just luck of the draw that nobody ever spotted him. Or something like that. That uh, you know, I think if he if he was so broken and had and everything was shattered, why does he still care about his identity? If he gave up his best friends, right? Right. He gave up his life. He, he you know he's living in the cellars. You know why why keep up the pretense of a secret identity. I, well, just, don't, and you know, I just don't get it. I just don't get there it. Was a, there was a hint of a rationale at the beginning <clears throat> when he was recovering from his his auditory setbacks, mm-hmm. injuries to his head. And he wrapped a white cloth, or like some sort of like linen cloth around him, and then he put a black cloth around him. Whoops. And there was this implication that he was wrapping his head to sort of insulate his ears a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which is at odds with how he operates. Cause he actually, you know, he could barely function when he couldn't hear and, and that wasn't helping. And also it just, it, it really wasn't that, <laughs> but right. that was how they kind of got there. But I don't know. At the same time, I just, I like the way it looked. So yeah, there you go. No, that's, that's fair enough. I just, um, and with, with the Muay Thai uh, ropes that he had at the end. That, the last that, I would, that I really like because he was so desperate to try and beat Bullseye. Yeah. Okay. That, so that. Yeah. so it's interesting, though, and this this um, goes to um, my favorite scene in the whole fucking series. But it was interesting that the best part of the whole thing, he wasn't in costume. And that was the prison breakout. 
<laughs> Correct. And that was just an amazing, so Daredevil just has, you know, I don't know if they've won an Emmy or whatever for cinematography and, but they should, because some of those scenes are just so effing epic. And uh, that prison, yeah. that prison scene was just unreal. It, that was, that was really just unreal. That was off the hook. I read that. I mean, many people think that that was the continuous take um, or a couple but of it, continuous takes, but I think <clears> it was, I think it was fused together kind of like Black Panther did where they took, a couple, two or three long takes and stitched them, but oh, it was really? still fucking amazing. Okay. Yeah, because I thought it was like the stairwell scene where it was just the one and done. Uh, I watched it twice, and there are three or four moments where he slips into black. They could be the cut points, and I haven't mm-hmm. heard the I haven't heard the creators actually comment on that episode yet. So hopefully, okay. I okay. will eventually. But but regardless, it certainly plays like it's one. I mean, nothing's. I don't think anything's ever going to reach uh, True Detective season one level no, no, awesome no, come on. Yeah. because that just came out of nowhere we didn't even know we didn't even have a hallway scene to prepare us for that <laughs> right no, the, the, and, and out of the the entire you know pantheon of scenes that they had and that that thing just came out of left field and hit you with like a sledgehammer and it was in, totally in, different than anything pop. that they had going on right yeah yeah it was so out of left field that that's what really made it that much more powerful oh absolutely so <laughs> like I, the night it aired i had to rewind it like three times I'm like that didn't really just happen like that was not just one take right there's no way that they did that and it was it was amazeballs i um it, hmm. all right so I don't know. I don't. I, I can't be really structured about this. I'm just kind of bouncing all over the place. But so no. But we can. But we uh, let's talk about the major arcs. Like right, um, if if we can, like so he had the Daredevil arc where he's trying to come to grips and he's trying to find redemption, and then like he wasn't King trying to find redemption. No, no. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to slip away into the abyss. Right. Um, he was trying to kill himself. Right. And then Kingpin comes up and what i also like was kind of the homeland vibe with the fbi yeah and that was Kingpin. really interesting that I was thought that really was re- they did yeah. more to capture the 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 uh the losing battle of going to bed with your enemies to get other enemies um they did a really good job of showing that yeah that whole arc with what's his name uh ray i was really surprised at first i didn't like the guy and i was like well i don't know about this but it actually turned out to be really compelling, and I liked the way it ended. Um, it was uncomfortable, but uh, it actually turned. Out. Yeah, JLD, the actor. Yeah, the Rahul Nadim. Yeah, Rahul. Yeah, yeah. What uh, are you familiar with well, him, some I, other I, stuff? I, no, uh, I'm not. I, this is the first thing I've seen him in. But there's also, you know, Wilson. So what? What I found really intriguing <clears throat> is when. Um, the interplay between Wilson Bethel, the actor and JLD, the actor in that arc of, you know, the whole Kingpin redemption thing getting turned into bullseye. Right. Right. And, and you have this divergent path where Rahul goes redemption. And then the other uh, Wade Kinsella does not. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, so, uh, so, one thing I want to mention before we slip too far into that is that uh, the no, casting. Point decks point decks. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Ca- ca- yeah casting wise, that is what made the uh, sort of convalescing in the church and that whole, you know, external, uh, you know, ha- having an external um, moral compass and all that stuff make keep from being too nauseating was the casting of his mother. 
Yeah. Granted that she would have never whispered that prayer and all that other shit to reveal herself, but because she knew who he well, was, he knew how he worked. But 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 just that uh, casting, she was so amazing in that role. She did such a good job. Yes. That it came close to making me believe that a nun would <laughs> have this child and mm-hmm. have them in the basement. Someone she knows is brutalizing and sometimes murdering people. Um, and have them. I mean, she did so well. And I'm only familiar with her when she was very young. So it was quite a shock. Yeah. I'm blanking on the name of the actress, but yeah, she. Um, it's Joanne Wally. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, but, but so I thought there was a golden opportunity that they missed. Oh, uh, with with that arc. What if she went up there and confessed, knowing that he would hear it? It's very possible, right? But why and wouldn't she just tell him? If that <clears throat> were the case, because she couldn't bear to look at him when she did it. Yeah. Well, I like that the I like the fact that this entire season was about the fallibility of humans. And yes. That um, and the power of forgiveness. And yeah, the power of forgiveness. Right? Yeah. yeah. Religious people um, put their icons on a pedestal, right? The Catholics certainly do it, and I, and I came up in a Catholic environment. Mm-hmm. But other religions do as well. Their religious leaders and religious servants are expected to be inhuman. And mm-hmm. I've always been struck growing up looking at the Jesuit and Franciscan brothers and sisters that I interacted with in my Catholic school. Um, I was always impressed by the fact that they were supposed to, particularly because uh, Franciscans were um, took a vow of chastity and a vow of poverty, right? So they're actually walking around in robes. They got nothing. They don't have any stuff back in their house. Because I, yeah, plen- I see plenty of religious leaders <laughs> drive Mercedes in Marin County. These are yeah. not those guys. And, I, <clears throat> and I, was, I grew up thinking about how much work it must take, constant uh, maintenance on yourself, so to speak, to divorce yourself from your basic human uh, instincts, right? To be vessels and mentors. Uh-huh. And, you still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, we have. I'm here. Difficulty. Can I'm you here. hear me? Yeah. What I was what I was saying was watching Franciscans have to put away their humanity at the same time they have to be their most humane was very interesting. And I thought it must be incredibly difficult to deny all your basic in, basic vital human instincts about sex and about possessions and about the things that feel good. Uh, to pursue your calling. And mm-hmm. what I liked about uh, Matt Murdock's mother in this is that, and, and actually Father Latham too, is that you see them fallible and you see them make mistakes as humans, even as they try to be, reli- um, you know, religious people. It's very good that they show yeah, that. I agree. I thought it was always about they're trying to do the right thing. And live by their own code. Like again, this whole this whole thing being true to themselves, right? And and how sometimes you are your own worst enemy when trying to attain that. Were you struck by <laughs> that he has his confrontation with uh, Father Latham and he's in a pub shooting pool and having a whiskey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like they didn't even address that. <laughs> they didn't even say anything about it. <laughs> well, I was you know, really surprised. Uh, I've known a lot of Jesuits in my day, and uh, that didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> well, anyway, okay, going to the King Ben thing. Um, By the way, just shout out to Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, geez. dude, once again, 
you, 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 make, everything, you, you make everything better. No, yeah. Whatever you're in, you make it better. Dude, uh, he, thank God, thank God you were born. <laughs> they have a, they have a, yeah, they have a real, they had a really distinct um, plotting problem when they put the kingpin in prison because this is a guy that in season one is established as being the leader of the underworld and used to unlimited power and no one, he's a guy who's never not had his way. Mm -hmm. And it was very clever of them to establish that he would stay in prison and put up with the bullshit and get more powerful. Well, specifically so that his, so that Vanessa would be safe. That mentality, even though it was a mantra that kind of got old when he would say it, it it was a reason for him to put up with bullshit that the kingpin that we know would just not put up with. And I loved the fact that he was restraining himself and allowing himself to be debased by the system in order to ensure that she wasn't touched and then had a plan to undermine all that and sort of restore himself despite that. And that I, and I found that more, more plausible and more interesting than I initially thought I would like in season two, when he's just in prison, I was having trouble with it. Cause I was like, eh, Kingpin wouldn't sat. He wouldn't be like the mafia guys or the magia in the case of Marvel. He wouldn't be like with those guys who are like in club fed, happy to run the business from behind the behind closed doors. He would have found his way out. So this see, gave I, it. This gave it that rationale. See, I actually, I actually took it a little more darker than you. Hmm? I thought that the whole thing with uh, Vanessa, right? Yeah, was something that he told himself and that he told others, right? As kind of a cover, so they would never question anything he was doing. Hmm. And and I, I think you know he he obviously did. And does truly love her and everything else, but I think he used it as. See, so I think he's like Lex Luthor smart and Lex Luthor manipulative, right? I think I think. Well, he, they showed that throughout the season right. that he had like six levels of planning behind everything that was happening. Right, and so the FBI story and everything else that he told them about, oh, this is all about Vanessa. I just want to, you know, she makes me want to be a better man, and uh, that kind of thing. I thought that was just a trope, so that his real machinations would never be questioned. Okay, so, but so I, no, I, thought, I don't I know about that. Like, uh, I, thought like, I thought he was like five, six steps ahead of you know. I think you're half right. Everyone. I think you're half right. I think I think his pillow talk about um, about Vanessa was not about she wants me to be better. I think he was uh, saying. I'm doing this for Vanessa so that she's safe. And I think that was genuine. But what I think he was doing, though, at the same time, was organizing the underworld, eliminating his opposition, and setting himself up, using the FBI to make him more powerful than ever. That part I think he was being duplicitous about. But I think he was... I, th I think that the whole thing about keeping her safe was very true. I, yes. think, I think he just yeah. wasn't actually banking on them truly keeping their end of the deal, he was still going to bring her back himself. I think he and he was bringing her back. He in, keep, yeah, I, mean, I think he wanted to keep her safe so that he could bring her back. Well, that's what I'm and, saying. And realize his plot to get together in the penthouse and, there, and have that life. Well, that's what I'm saying. When he says, I want to keep Vanessa safe, and they're hearing it as, you just want us to allow her to stay in Europe and not um, harass her. And he's saying that, but he's thinking... 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to dismantle the FBI's power. I'm going to organize the underworld. I'm going to completely control this. And then I'm going to bring her back into a safe environment where no one can touch her because I'm in charge of everything. So in that sense, I think he was duplicitous. But I think he but I but I think the statement was true. It just wasn't true in the way that the FBI saw it. Yeah, I don't think he was trying to expand his humanity. No, not at all. But I never really got that sense either. Um, uh, it's really hard to dip into the Kingpin storyline in this movie without, I mean, in this series without talking about Poindexter. Um, holy shit, man. <laughs> Again, casting is everything, right? You know that guy was uh, one of the finalists, I guess, or he was closing in on uh, Captain America before he was he lost to Chris Evans? He That's great. I could easily see him as Cap. Yeah. <laughs> he does. And, and actually, I think um, – and I think as well, – when you watch him, when he was being the uh, – you know, when he was being the FBI guy and he was kind of Mr. Tough, he was um, sort of belligerent and, and, and negative in his aspect. But when he was talking as artificial as it was by that point because you realize he's a sociopath who's been patterned. But when he was talking with his uh, his love interest – or his stability interest or whatever. It was not a you, love interest. It was, yeah. yeah this. <laughs> right, right. He really just needed a, a buoy. But, no, it was good. I'm like, I went out for a long romantic walk and she never saw me. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when he said that he was not stalking her for the reasons she thinks, <clears throat> he was 100% honest in those scenes. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, they did a good job of painting with those flashbacks. They did a really good job of painting a picture of how that creature came to be it was like the negative underbelly of every law and order episode scene and it was fascinating in a way that i mean as much work as they put into trying to give karen pages um her backstory some meat and kind of play up to the the comics thing about her having a drug problem at some point and all that um his was no, she, much she more had, effective she had a people problem that was manifested in drugs right right, right. and his his background really effectively conveyed how he was a walking dead he was not a human and that type of sociopath is very interesting yes i loved it when they he's talking to his uh shrink therapist counselor whatever and and she's trying to teach him empathy and oh yeah and and she teaches him the phrase that must be really hard for you and then after that scene he used it no 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 blake he used it before that Yes, he I know. Use that, but, but, and then you see, then you watch the flashback, and you realize that he was pat. That was something he was programmed to do to fit in. That was amazing. Yeah, but it, and then every time you use it afterwards. Oh, sure. Because that was his fallback. Like when he's going right. out with the date with right. the uh, yeah, act normal, <laughs> act normal, everything's fine. Um, everything about his story was fascinating to me. Um, I loved how much they used the cinematography to frame him. <laughs> yes. In his own environment, he was black and white. I and was just stunned by that. His apartment was black and white. He was black and white. The mm-hmm. cl- the classic comics bullseye character is a black and white design, right? Mm-hmm. With the bullseye on the head. I loved all of those affects. Like he's got this perfect, perfectly clean apartment with no nothing except the photo of her on the wall, and it was like he's just perfectly vanilla environment, just completely sterile. Like he looked. Mm-hmm. He, he found this apartment's decoration in a catalog, just like put the stuff here, vital utilitarian needs, and then some things that normal people are supposed to have. Right. This is what normal looks like. Yeah. And that thing where he was, star- I loved watching him fray. 
right? Like I loved I love, when I love he... the B sounds. The B yeah, sounds. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it was really overt towards the end, but I loved like the. Um, I like the tipping points. Yeah, right. As he would get stressed, you would hear it. But I love the tipping point stuff, like when he lost his shit and he threw the thing. He threw the steak knife right into the into the into the uh, uh, photo and right mm-hmm. into her face in the photo. Right. And then there was a scene where he's like, ah, oh, put he put his he put his uh, headphones on and he's vacuuming and he's attempting to vacuum up all this destruction, all the drywall and glass and shit everywhere that from what, from his tantrum, he's but vacuuming. The knife is still there, but the knife is still in it. The knife is still in it, but as he's vacuuming, it's doing nothing. Yes. It's just pushing it, the glass around. It was pushing the glass around and he was, and he was doing what he was supposed to do mm-hmm. to recapture control, but it was doing nothing. I thought that was fucking amazing. I was like, holy shit, this guy owns this stuff. I loved it. I loved it. So um, to me, to, yeah. to me, it's a, to me, it's a close competition. So what what I find interesting is that the two storylines that I loved the most out of season three was nothing with Daredevil in his arc. It was not, mm-hmm. you know, Karen or Foggy. It was Kingpin and Bullseye. Sure, <laughs> like that. That was Kingpin manipulating him and his and his uh, guidance issues was amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I loved. Uh, I love the way you watched Kingpin slowly seduce him mm-hmm. and you saw the game happening as it unfolded, which I thought was great, which was a very different way of seeing how he was controlling. Uh, is it Rahim or Rahid? Rahid. Rahid. His, the, the reveal of how much control he had in Rahid was, was a more like uh, I'm panicked in the room. <laughs> like, I, Oh shit, I'm cornered. But watching well, but him, the, watching him as a predator come down on and manipulate Poindexter was mm-hmm. more subtle, and uh, I don't know, it was very crafty. It was very interesting the amount of restraint <laughs> he was using. He's a brilliant character, <laughs> absolutely. But it, and, and it also it, so it reinforced that narrative that Daredevil, Foggy, and Karen had that no matter how hard we try, Kingpin has outmaneuvered us all. You know. Every time. Yeah, that desperation and his yeah. feeling like there's nothing I can do except just kill him was um, a very re- re- realistic thematic problem for the character. Mm-hmm. Because it cuts to the bone of 40 years or 50 years of comic history that he's just going to... It's just like Batman and the Joker, right? Mm-hmm. So Batman has a thing where I swear I'm not going to kill unless it's the movies, in which case I kill everybody. Well, you know... <laughs> It's hard. It's it's hard to be an ethical. I'm not going to kill uh, mantra, but at the same time, have someone who's going to do not only not only kill people, but is going to use that against you, and people mm-hmm. are going to die because of your inability to do that. You're killing the you're killing the victims by not di- taking that position, and so I think that's very powerful. It is because you're you're, and it's the ultimate temptation to corrupt yourself. Yeah, I love right. watching people yeah. who are in control start to crack and so my favorite things in this were poindexter losing control and starting to have to go back into <laughs> mantras and stuff and, and 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 pantomimes to try to figure out how to retain his sanity or his his grip i love that where he's starting to lose it and i also when, love when, when, and when he goes off and just starts throwing stuff yeah that is just amazing 
Yeah, because you right. realize that that guy could fucking eat a steel beam. You know, like he's just that's not even the beginning of the iceberg of his pathos, right? Yeah. Um, but I loved, and that's why that's why towards the end when he like shows up with her body in the car, yeah. I'm like, yep, there he is. He's completely let loose. But the same thing with Kingpin. I'm much better now. I've found my true self. I love the Kingpin stuff where, where you know, Kingpin. I, what I love about D'Onofrio's performance as Kingpin is that he's, uh, he's very stoic. He's not. Um, it's not that he doesn't have emotion, but there's no wasted movement, right? Wilson mm-hmm. Fisk does not waste movement. He's very calm and careful. That's why when he makes eggs and kind of hand rings about whether Vanessa likes this or that, it's interesting, right, to tell. Mm-hmm. And what I really loved in this was there were moments when you see him twitch. It was the pivotal scene. One of the most power- powerful scenes in the season was Karen Page confronting him in his apartment. She went mm-hmm. right into the the belly of the beast. She went into the den. She's being filmed, and she's completely at his mercy, and she's trying to <coughs> trigger him. <coughs> Thinking if that if she triggers him, they'll come and save her before they fuck, before he kills her. But that thing when he and, when she and, was and pushing at his works. past and it almost works. Yeah, when she's pushing at his past and you see that little twitch he's got, mm-hmm. he starts to get this little twitch. And I was like, holy shit! How many people in that world has ever have ever gotten Kingpin to twitch? Right? No one. Virtually no one. Yeah. Especially when she when she tells him he she killed his best friend. Oh yeah. Right, and it's like. I don't know. That took me a little by surprise because I didn't ever get the feeling that his right-hand man was a pal. I just thought he was a very functional tool. Well, and maybe that's that's why his reaction, like, you took my tool but, away. But, I mean, but it was but, very written, <clears throat> it was written that he was his best friend and all this other stuff. It was an yeah. emotional connection for him, but, yeah, you know, that's fine. Um, one of the things I really liked, uh, there's some, some details that I really like. This is um, in my scalpy scribbles, as you know, I, I love to take. I took a mm-hmm. lot less in this season than I have in the past just because I was giving myself more time to just sort of absorb it. But mm-hmm. one of the things I really liked was that um, there's some these little details of realism that I really appreciate about this um, world that they've created that the other <clears throat> the other Netflix series don't have. Such for, as? For example... Best example, in Karen's apartment, she's written a sign that says keys, and it's on her door. So it's like on her front door, so that as she walks out the door, she's going to see that sign and go, oh, shit, I got to take my keys with me, right? That said so much about her character and and her as a real person than almost anything I see on TV. I just couldn't believe how what a, what a nuanced little detail that was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was, I thought that was really, um, I mean, that was the main one that I liked, but I mean, there was a bunch of little details like that, little, little affectations that make you feel like, uh, that the person's a real character. There's like, uh, with Rahid, it was, uh, the thing about whether he was making the sandwiches Mm -hmm. properly or not. Yeah. Uh, and his, no, not his sort of like, well, this gets the job done, um, Approach versus his kid's expectation that he's going to do it in a more nuanced way that his wife would like and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what a poor fucking tragic figure, right? His the the sister's cancer, everything being orchestrated was, and I didn't need it to be orchestrated. I I, I was willing to accept that he was just in a bind, and Kingpin discovered, like instantly figured out that this guy has a weakness and then exploited it now, to make I, everything I, about Kingpin's <laughs> mac 
uh, machinations is was a little much for me, but well, but the, I think that's weaponizing cancer is a little tough. <laughs> well, but I mean, he, I think he reverse engineered the problem, right? Okay, I'm in prison. It's run by the state. I want to get out. What's the best way to do that? Get with the feds. Who do I need to tip? Into but that was a stretch because Ray was not Rahid. Sorry, was not um, his main guy to deal with at that point. Until they, they, they said the later on. That, but, but remember, he had a whole bunch of other FBI agents come in. And he blew them off until Rahid showed up. But then but but at the time Rahid showed up, his sister had already had cancer. And they say later on, the implication is that the kingpin had orchestrated everything that was happening in his family to yes. put him in financial peril. <clears throat> right. So the timeline so does he... not work. The po- timeline does not work. He did not have that. The only way that timeline works is that he had a dossier of all the FBI agents, found a guy and said, this is a guy I can exploit mm-hmm. and exploited him until he showed up, which means yeah. he would have known about Rahid long before Rahid showed up on that duty. I would say out of everything else in the show that was stringed together, that's not the thing I'm going to pick on the most. Okay. Well, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. But I mean, I thought his story was very reasonable. I mean, I yeah, yeah. I have I have wake up in the middle of the night uh, financial pressures about my family, and oh, absolutely, and I have I have um, stresses about try about being like casual with my kids when something is super stressful in the background. And there was mm-hmm. a lot of stuff about his character, even though there were times when he was pontificating in a way that made him not feel real. There were a lot more that made him feel super relatable to me. Yes, I agree. He is a very he's one of the most relatable characters on the show. And it was relieving when he figured out how badly he had been taken advantage of. And 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 even to the point where it was beautiful to see him take himself out. I mean, it was so tragic, but it was interesting to see him take himself out in a way that was like, yeah. I'm going to make myself useful for the first time in a long time by doing this. Yeah. I just and, wish he would have done. I just wish he would have done that before the uh, church massacre. Yes. However, yeah, right. Well, but I almost feel like that massacre was his uh, his fulcrum, though, right? Like that was the thing that that's pushed a, him. That, that's a hell of a that's a hell of a fulcrum. But I love. But I like that. I like that though. I loved that he watched. He let that happen without running in and doing something. Like I love that. That I mean, it, it felt very realistic and mortal, and and weak of him to. Let it go and be like, well, what are you? What did you do? I have outrage about what you did, but I, I fucking know what you did. I, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was very convincing. Mm. I thought that was convincing as something that he's not going to be able to live with, right? One way or the other, yeah. And I love that. And I love that he did his final moments in in his pool. Like that was such a great yeah, that, that compositional was, yeah. uh, piece, given that it was the symbol of his hopes and dreams that were being glorious, right? Mm-hmm. I love that. It was interesting. Yeah, I, I just, I just, so to me, I just thought it was, it kind of um, nullified the redemption tale at the end. Because he, 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 they kind of build him up as this Boy Scout had a tragic flaw, right? Right. Um, but then the cave, like a wallflower, I mean, that that's just something you can't walk back after something like that. Yeah. There was a there was a thematic thing going through most of the season that was really strange, which was that Mac Murdoch almost had like the the angel and the devil on his shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. He had like the angel on his sho- shoulder telling him one thing, and the devil on his shoulder telling the other thing, and and uh, and it was distracting to me a little bit because it was so yeah. overt, right? <laughs> well, everybody was. That's kind of the theme for every character on the show, including Kingpin. Yeah. All right. 
I um I liked kind of burning through my scalpy scribbles because there's just so much here. Um, I really liked. There's a sequence where he's sensing, he's going through, and then he senses the harmonics that there are conduits for power running mm-hmm. to a hidden room, and then he finds the hidden room. That was one of the best uses of his other senses that we've seen. That wasn't just echolocating and it's sort of like seeing. That yeah. was sensing something <clears throat> that people don't... That was something that didn't translate um, to another sense that people would relate to. And mm-hmm. I appreciated that they didn't broadcast it as he suddenly sees a thing. He sees the, the, the electrical layout of the of yeah, place yeah. and figures out what's happening. Um, I thought but that was they kind really of did, They kind of did that in the Defenders as well when uh, they're in the Chinese restaurant. Yeah. He's like, I still hear neon. Yeah. Right. I really appreciated that this whole season had very little stalling. Yeah. There was, I mean, there were some returns to the well in terms of certain scenes and everything, but you never got the sense that they were uh, treading water the way the other Netflix shows do. Like, it felt linear enough to keep you going. And I, and, and, uh, and, and, and that, that, ca- that pace, that cadence felt like it was ramping up to the finale. Like, that was exactly what you want is the build up and the tension building, and then you just hit the thing, right? Agreed. And I, but I think, I think what they were able to do, sorry, I think that what they were able to do as opposed to Jessica Jones or Luke Cage or Iron Fist is that they, they conquered the pacing challenges by having the different arcs in a single episode get sparsed out between many characters going through their different paths. Yep. Right. And so you had a lot of different plot lines, the with foggy and Karen and Foggy's story was really, I mean, we barely touched on it, but his story was really powerful in this. Yeah. I liked him more in this than any, any other uh, season, particularly his hair was great, but I mean like <laughs> his whole thing about like he, he, he developed cojones that he never had before. Yes. Long before the policeman's union. Uh, running for, <laughs> running, running for office and all that to push. And I thought that, I thought that was brilliant. That. Yeah, yeah. And uh, is it is it just me or did his girlfriend change, physically change pretty wildly over the course of the seasons? Didn't she? She. I I, I didn't notice. Yeah, she, I didn't notice. Yeah, she seemed like she kind of slimmed down and kind of got a little bit more sultry in this season than in previous ones. But what I liked about it is that in the previous seasons, you didn't trust her. Right. Yeah. She seemed like she was kind of taking advantage of him or she <clears throat> didn't really she wasn't really behind him. And they there was no there was no other shoe dropping with her in this season. And if, if anything, he took advantage of her because he found that brief or whatever that fell and had and, then, and, then went, and then went OCD yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of felt like their relationship. Uh, it, it parsed to me uh, when I was watching it, which was good. Um mm-hmm. There was a scene that I really liked. Um, I mean, it was really obvious, sim- uh, the symbology of it. But uh, there was a moment where he, like, roped something up or he used a rosary <laughs> in combat. And I was like, really? Yes. I mean, all you got to do at this point is pick up the cr- – take crosses off the sculptures and start whacking people with them, right? But, yeah, the, you know. You're talking, you're talking bullseye, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, breaking the off beat. the rosary and yeah. using them. Uh, because specifically the rosary is not only a, a, you know, a twine with a bunch of elements that he can use as ballistic projectiles, but also the sim, the symbolism of a rosary, mm-hmm. right. Is surrender and, uh, and, uh, you know, self-effacement. So I don't know. I thought that was pretty amazing. You know, I honestly, uh, bullseye was really powerful to me. He was powerful because I loved his, 
his uh, his abilities were not a supernatural or superpower thing. He was just impossibly skilled. He was on the spectrum skilled, right? Like that's how they're rationalizing it, that he has some thing going with him. But I loved that he was easily outskilling that's uh, not a word, but Daredevil. Like he was definitely Daredevil could not could not win uh, unless he were to change his tactics and get in and do the close assault stuff with the or with the or buy a shield or buy a shield. Well, I mean, I thought that that was really amazing that that first sequence where he shows up. I mean, that whole uh, newspaper mm-hmm. office scene Dude, was, that was so intense. fucking scary, yeah. but it was so good. I mean, it was scary to see how many bodies were falling and how just just the stakes were really. I mean, it really felt visceral. I mean, I was like, "Holy shit, man!" Yeah. But but also, I just loved all the stuff like he's picking up. I loved. I was waiting for this, picking up all these random things like fucking like ballpoint pens and staples and whatever else. And, and just like and, yeah, taking yeah. things out and using things for anything was a weapon to him, and it was a brutal, perfect killing weapon, and I yes. loved it. And watching him get his ass handed to him was amazing. And also, uh, I was really struck by how Poindexter in... He never had a bullseye costume. But Poindexter, by wearing the, the, the Daredevil costume, he looked scary as Daredevil. It was like what the villains... What, what, the, what, the, uh, what the criminals felt when they saw mm-hmm. him in, a, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in an alley or something. I mean, he looks scary as shit, particularly that one where he comes up from behind Kingpin, right? And he's just like, yes, he's got this top down lighting and he's got this kind of moody thing going on. But when you see him in that costume, he just looks so visceral and deadly. Well, I, uh, I actually think uh, Dex pulled off the Daredevil suit better than Murdoch ever mm-hmm. did. He didn't have the giant forehead. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I just it, like uh, it was really interesting to see because we've seen that before where someone else wears a character's costume and it looks weird. But mm-hmm. this was a sequence. This was a situation where he wore the costume and it didn't feel awkward. It felt like, I don't know, thematically, it felt right. It really, really worked to me that he wore the Daredevil costume and always wore it. So, so let me let me pull on that string, pull on that thread a little bit. Do you think it worked they, maybe they were intentional about it because that suit really represents the the dark side that Matt is turning away from, and the the killing, the becoming the devil, all of that's the you know the devil in Hell's Kitchen. Dex really was the devil in that suit. Yeah, I know. I didn't see that. You, 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 don't, you don't think I, they were doing I that? Follow, I follow your logic, and I follow this the the the, the symbolism of the de- of the devil. But to me, I thought he was representing a perversion of the version of daredevil that was codified that was like i'm i'm a i'm i'm a vigilante but i'm you know i'm equipped i'm armored i've got this whole uniform i'm i'm part of this i'm part of this system of protecting people in this uniform granted it had daredevil image it had devil imagery but it was it was the world that he it was the world that he was trying to live in that didn't work, and now he was demoralized and saying, "You know, fuck it, I've got to take the, I got to take the, the, uh, the low road, and just be an assassin in black, right?" And but and, not, but and not, by but not and by bullseye using that, wearing his colors, and being an assassin, 
that perversion was what was powerful to me. Well, the, yeah, I'm saying the same thing. I'm just to me, but it's not the devil stuff. It's not like, oh no, no, no. I'm saying that bullseye in that suit became became the became daredevil the that imagery. Murdoch was fighting. Right, right. Murdoch he became never the wanted to be. Right. Yes. He became the imagery that that Murdoch was using in that motif for sure. Right, and, and, and the reason why he walked away from it and put it on is because he didn't want to be what Bullseye was in that suit. But what I loved about it was that they they nailed something they flirted with in multiple franchises, Batman included, which was that um, the guy dresses like a scary guy. <laughs> He's doing vigilante right. stuff. And sometimes it's written that the that the populace is like yeah the vigilante's like sticking up for us brooklyn and then other times they're like holy shit there's a guy in a weird costume that's that's like throwing people off of bridges and whatever in this instance he shows up and they're like oh it's daredevil oh fuck he's killing everybody and then they went and told all the told the police and told the reporters <coughs> daredevil killed yeah. a bunch of people yeah and everyone's like well daredevil's a fucking super bad guy and like that was very realistic to me I thought that was really powerful. You couldn't do that to like, you know, I mean, there are, there are a lot, like you couldn't do that to like the Iron Man armor. Right. But you can do that to a character whose, whose presentation is, you know, you know, Batman rationalizes, I'm scaring the bad guys, but you know, they've got a dark and stormy appearance. When someone takes that and actually does the things that you're pretending to do, that's some scary stuff, right? Yeah. And fulfills a stereotype that you never wanted to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, one of the uh, um, one other thing I, quickly that I wrote down in my uh, in my in my scalpy scribbles was that at one point someone yells out "Stay frosty." <laughs> I don't remember who did, but you know that's a straight up uh, um, the Zombieland reference that I loved. Um, that's rule number f- two or four: "Stay frosty" in that movie, uh, and then. Uh, the last thing I was going to say was that, um, and it's not something I thought of at the time, but in the comic, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking back. Didn't they use that a couple of times? Yeah, they said. And, and I think I thought they used it in Defenders when they're on the way down in the elevator as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, obviously it's a military reference, yeah. but I just you know, <laughs> it's always Zombieland to me when I hear that. Stay the other, the other thing is, um, in the comics, Kingpin has. His suits, his white suits, you know, they're armored. So there was this whole deal with he 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 got the white suits in this season, right? And when I first saw that, I was like, I don't know, you know, it's kind of literal and weird for the comics. And then when they first introduce introduce it in the season, he only was wearing it in Matt Murdock's hallucinations, right? <laughs> Which at that point thematically makes sense, right? I've, you know, I'm helping the cops and I've reformed and you're the bad guy and I'm, you know, I'm your greatest enemy, but I'm in, you know, I'm redeeming myself. White Look suit. at me, I'm pristine. Well, and, and I'm pristine. You know, just, like the, just like the Pope. I'm untouchable. I'm the Pope. Yeah. Right, right, right. But then he wears it, He then he wears it for real and I think that that ruined it. I think it would have been better if the white suit was only in his imagery of him and not in the real mm. world, right? Okay, yeah. Now that said, in the comics, his suits are armored. And what was interesting in this finale was he grabs Vanessa when the whole ho- the whole hoedown's happening. He grabs Vanessa and he's like, take this. And he puts his jacket around her and shoves her off to the side. And they never directly referenced the fact that, you know, there was... A, I mean, but that was a very strange 
deliberate thing to do. Here, take my jacket. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I would have liked to have seen a reference to the fact that the, it was actually armored because he took the jacket off and then he started taking knife shots, you know? And he was well, never well, injured when he had his jackets on. And again, they, they, they had a perfect opportunity to present that. Mm-hmm. Right? When, the, when um, Matt goes back and confronts the guy about creating the other Daredevil suit. Yeah. Right? What if that same guy made Kingpin's armored suits? Ah, uh, poor Gladiator. Right? Right. And and that th- that could have been yeah the, the kingpins the, the the kingpins armored now or something like that it could have been a really nice tie about why the kingpin went initially and then said hey what about this daredevil guy and yeah the whole thing about figuring out that he made a second suit and and how he was manipulated and and compromised by his girlfriend and all that stuff I mean everything about all of the you know the web that King, that uh, Fisk had laid was fascinating to watch and i loved it um what was interesting at the end was that vanessa had embraced the life right because so in the what comics do you think of what do you think what do you think of that well okay so in the comics <clears throat> uh kingpin is believed to be dead for a long time or something dead dead or in prison but i think dead and vanessa is running the underworld in his absence for a long time in the comics so that is something that I didn't think about until they started doing it. And then I was like, yeah, well, actually that was in the comics, but it did feel very last. It, it felt very sudden in the way that the story was structured, but I really appreciated the fact that he gets her and they go through all this work and he gets her back to his, his, his penthouse. And he's like trying to whine her and dine her and everything. And she's just kind of like, well, you know, I know what you do. Come on. And you dude. need to, yeah. and you need to let me in and let me be a hundred percent. Cause if I'm not a hundred percent, I'm an art piece on the wall. Like all the symbolic art that you were making a big deal about. And by the way, that thing where Poindexter went and got the got the art for him. With uh, the blood on the corner. With the blood on the corner against his wishes um, was very interesting to me. That he missed that divide. That he didn't understand why Kingpin would have left it there. Mm-hmm. And that he reached and got it instead. That was, um, I thought it was really powerful. It was one of my favorite parts of that whole season. Him bringing that painting back against uh, Fisk's wishes was pretty cool. But Vanessa appreciated it. Yeah, she understood what it meant. Yeah, she like, understood what it meant, which was you. that which was that Poindexter was an, a weapon that could be used in that way. Yeah, yeah. And in that final sequence, I mean, it was a little bit out of scale that uh, Kingpin could pick up Poindexter and throw him against a wall and smash people around because you never get a sense that he is super, um, supernaturally strong in any way. Um. I like the fact that well, you see that he has been lifting weights and he's very powerful, but there's yeah. both of those guys, uh, Poindexter and Murdoch, have fought against extremely skilled opponents. So there wasn't a lot of rationale for why Kingpin could be throwing them around like ragdolls. But I like that it was still happening because I appreciated that for all of his power, um, Bullseye is taken out by a corner blow against some J-molds against around the corner of a, <laughs> a fucking wall, like Love broke it. his back, you know. I I hear you about what the the series did, but in the comics, Kingpin yeah. was like was like you know, Rhino. Right, but that's but right. that's a failing, right? Because those characters are always more interesting when they're not physically powerful. Mm. To me, okay. when it's mentally powerful, not physically powerful. I don't like when they like when Lex Luthor in the nineties, eighties. It was the eighties that they put Lex Luthor in an armored an armored suit color match to his motif right it was a purple and green armored suit to fight superman it's like what that's not lex luthor 
He doesn't have to I, lay a I, finger. I, I, I get it, but to me, Kingpin, he, his last resort is violence. He he feels you know, yes, dirty yes, when yes, he yes, yes. But that's right? the so but that's the wrong. Yeah, but that's the violence on us on a, a an opponent in the underworld or an underling where he just unleashes the beast and just like you know car doors him until he's dead right um physically fighting against daredevil and bullseye was too much for me okay yeah um, uh, it was one of my favorite part of the the comics oh, it was yeah. yeah so i don't i don't have that same aversion to it sure all right well so um yeah i mean i don't know there's i mean we've like, barely so let, let, let me let's let's go to you know the the next steps of it Okay. Like, like, so with, you know, all the arcs, everything else, and the the penultimate, ultimate scenes, and I like, I like Matt Murdock figuring out he has to get close to Bullseye in order to he needs to bridge the distance. Yes. And get out of melee weapon range, and, and tangle get close. him up. Yep. Enter the ropes, enter the figuring out how to decoy him, and you know, distract him so that he can get close enough to to blindside him and all that stuff, which was great. Mm-hmm. Go on. What were you saying? No, no. Um, so what are you looking most forward to in season four in terms of both the hero and the villains? So first of all, I'm interested in a season four <laughs> because at the rate at which Netflix is, cl- is canceling these shows, I think it's pretty clear that they know that the writing is on the wall as far as their uh, contractual ability to continue them. And Disney's and, and, and even in even who knows, who, maybe they have unlimited freedom to work on these characters the knowledge that Disney's streaming service is out there means that a good chunk of their viewing market may go for that genre may go away. Well, yeah, because you know Netflix doesn't they don't survive based on uh, diehard genre fans loving what they're doing with Marvel Netflix, right? They they subsist on mainstream viewers coming to them from other sources, right? They're converting mm-hmm. converting viewers and bringing new viewers in, and when when they had the Marvel Netflix stuff going in in a vacuum, they were getting a lot of people to show up and go, wow, this is interesting. I liked Iron Man. This is cool, <laughs> right? But when Disney streaming service starts, those same people are going to be like, oh, there's some cool superhero stuff on TV. Where, oh, I guess I go to the Disney streaming service. So you don't think they're going to crank out Daredevil and Jessica Jones? I don't Because I think they will. I, I would like them to. But I think that the reason why things are being canceled is because they know – that they want to spend their money on prop on uh, projects that they that don't have an end date like that. They don't have an expiry. So I don't know. I mean, so does that mean Marvel picks them up and brings them back to life? I really hope they do, but I don't know that they necessarily will. I would really love that they would because the casting and the worlds that they've created, I, mm-hmm. I would love to see them continue. And frankly, I'd like to see them continue on Disney because That's there's saying, nothing yeah. about any of yeah. this. There's nothing about any of this that is beholden to the Netflix ecosphere right right well it's the marvel ecosphere period right 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 um so yeah so anyway let's see so if i was to imagine a a daredevil season four i have to admit that i would like to see typhoid mary go full typhoid mary Mm -hmm. they only did once which was like a a trick of the light right she was like she was you kind of saw the half face it wasn't it wasn't that yeah, yeah 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 but uh, and you know she had a really tall order. I mean that kind of uh, mental illness is really hard to make seem re- reasonable. Uh, I'm sorry, go see Legion. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 
Yeah. Alice Eve's not. <laughs> Correct. So, so, so in that sense, um, it felt more like you're watching a video game where if you figure out the weakness and you splash the gremlin with water or the, or I guess the inverse of that, but you know what I mean? Like it was just, it didn't, she didn't feel like a real person. That whole trigger thing was a mechanism that didn't feel realized. I, mm-hmm. I didn't mind her involvement. It just didn't, I don't know. It seemed a little contrived. Yeah. But I did like the fact that she got out the way she got out and that there wasn't a fatalist, um, you know, sort of tragic end to that character. In Iron Fist Season 2, we have a good chunk of time spent on the Typhoid Mary character. She never fully realizes and becomes what we see in the comics with the half-face and fishnets mm-hmm. and crazy crazy times. She's, yeah. she's not portrayed that way. But in the comics, Typhoid Mary is directly linked to Daredevil. <clears throat> yes. And it's a really important Daredevil character. And so what I, what I would like to see is Daredevil Season 4 bring in Typhoid Mary in that way. Um, just because, uh, there, his weakness about, um, women that he cannot, um, compartmentalize is, is a, is a big thing for him. And Typhoid Mary is like the worst case scenario. Yeah. There, there are no compartments. There's only, you know, raised earth. Right. Uh, you know, as far as other thematic material, um, Honestly, I would I wouldn't mind seeing them explore Vanessa uh, Fisk's underworld and and uh, and Matt Murdock's struggle to rationalize to his mind that this this person that was a victim has become the same you know sort of depraved uh, sort of villain that Fisk was and mm-hmm. whether or not he can take it seri- can he take her seriously <clears throat> enough right yeah because he fought Electra but he was also had the hots for her right. Can he really take a non-powered, non-skilled, non-fighter female uh, foe that seriously? I feel like he would under. I think he would underestimate that character. So let, let me bring up a, an interesting plot point there. Then yes, what if Vanessa and Bullseye? Yeah, reconnect. Bullseye. Yeah, right. Well, because right. he was getting he was getting his uh, spinal enhancements by uh, what's his name in that. Last right, and, and then his eyes open up and it's mm-hmm. the black and white bullseye. Right. So if Vanessa and, and Bullseye link up, right, I think that opens up a whole other realm. Also, what about, um, what's her name, uh, who played the uh, psychologist in, uh, in, uh, fuck. You know it's one in the morning. <laughs> I can't remember my references and I, and I fuse shows, but... Um, uh, uh, what's her name who was playing the mob boss that was the one that was smart enough to get with the program in a hurry, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and she was a psychologist in uh, in uh, Sopranos, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't she? Yes, she was the, the, the one that Tony had the love interest with. Right. Yeah. So I loved her character, and I loved how she, she figured out which way the wind was blowing and got with the program in a hurry. So I would love to see her play a more prominent role in another season. What about you? That's it. Uh, I well, I'm I want Bullseye back. Yeah, for sure. I want I want Punisher back. Yeah. Uh, and I'd love to. I already gave it away. I'd like to see Vanessa in her new role as the the Kingpin. She actually out Kingpins the pin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that that sets up what I would say would be the final season, which would be the real true final conflict between Kingpin and Daredevil. That would be season five. 
Well, I'd watch it. Yeah. It's just tragic to me that people didn't watch this season the way they should have. They were burned out by all the other shows. It came too fast after Iron Fist. It wasn't very... Look at how little they promoted it. You didn't mm-hmm. see billboards about it. You didn't see bus the sides of buses talking about Daredevil Season 3. And yet it was really powerful, good stuff. Like, it really... it it You know, it was owed more... Uh, it should have got a better shot. Yes. It should have got a better shot. Yeah. And that, to me, is all about Disney. Because I don't feel like they would have, uh, you know, just sort of uh, shit the bed with the marketing on Daredevil if they didn't think that it was all a waste of fucking money at this point. <clears throat> because they, well, I mean, they broadcast all over the place about Iron Fist. <laughs> well, and, and look look what happened. Yeah, so I don't know. So I what's mean, your... um. So, so what would what would you say your red tentacle would be for Daredevil season three? My favorite scene, yes. Um, or your favorite thing about it doesn't matter. My, my well, my favorite thing in the favorite scene would be Bullseye realizing. I mean, Dex completing the transition to Bullseye, embracing it, and uh, it would it would have to be the church scene. No, I'm sorry. Actually, the correction it would be the. Um, the, the newspaper scene. Yeah. Well, that, that, that to me, that's like, welcome to the terror dome. Sure. Right. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's the prison, it's the prison break scene first. And then it's the newspaper scene. Newspaper scene was chilling as shit because he's wearing, because all these people are getting killed by staplers and stuff. And it just feels very horrible. Uh, domestic terror and murder in, in normal environments is very, very scary. It always is. But, well, and, and especially when they've got everybody aligned to go hear this deposition. Yeah. Okay. Everyone lined up and then, and then he's just taking them all out. But, and then, and then it's slaughterhouse five. Yes. That said, even more for me was the prison break scene because he's like, when he realizes he's trapped and the room's locked and he's looking up at the camera and he's like, Oh no, 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 no. He's not only trapped in a prison, <laughs> but he's also Matt Murdock. And I love that he's just like, well, fuck it. I'm going to fight my way out. Like that whole sequence was another round of what I love, which was the exhausted fighting, right? Yeah. Kicking. You're just like, ugh. But, but it was so realistic how he was just getting, going after guys, after guys, after guys and inmates and assassins and security guards and all this. And then his way out of the thing was very well realized as well. I, yeah, I don't I, know. I, I just, I, I love I, that whole thing. It was just amazing. Yeah. Well, it, it was, oh, and, it was, and he got drugged too, right? Yeah, it was an out of the blue scene. Yeah, right. Oh, just like right, it was a okay. He's going to go to a prison visit. He's going to see this dude, and then suddenly, well, because it's, it's a scene uh, we've seen WWE a million Raw. times. We've seen that a million times yeah. with the attorney going to visit someone in 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 lockup, right? Yeah, and to see and to be reminded that the entire prison is on the take was really cool. Well, right? I mean, it's divided into two camps, right? Right, uh, the Armenians and kingpins. Yeah, but the but the oh. the law enforcement, the prison security, the prison administrators, everybody was on the take. And that yeah, but was between one of those two camps. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what was your I, black? I, what was your black octopus? Um. Well, that's a really good question. Um. My black octopus was how predictable Kingpin's lawyers were. And it's how transparent and unnecessary they were in the entire thing. 
Yeah, they really didn't do much, did they? They didn't do anything, right? Um, and I thought the whole, you know, how did he create this vascular network to get all this stuff done? They didn't really go into that at all, and I thought that was one of the biggest holes. That okay, great, he's yeah. got all this stuff, and you know, none of it, none of his lawyers felt like someone he could really rely on. Whereas right. his old right hand man that she killed was someone that knew all the, knew where all the bodies were buried. Right, except for you know, and, and the the trope of the seller with that poor secretary assistant. Like, are you going to kill him now? Um, that was weird, right? It was very weird. Uh, that. So to me, I think they did a disservice to Kingpin and how he got to where he was with all these plans and machinations that it basically there was no there there, right? Yeah, I did. That's fine. Yeah, I did. Um, I did like the fact that he goes through all the work of getting in there, and then finds out that Kingpin's, you know, that Karen Page is at risk somewhere far away. <laughs> you know, that the the Sophie's Choice scenario in superhero movies. No, uh, Spider Man was always the principal one of that, but yeah. But it was even worse because he was ready to go there and kill him. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like, and I, it's like, oh god, I gotta go save him again. Well, yeah, he's like, I, you know, I'm, I could put an end to all this right now, but at the risk of losing her. Yeah. So I thought, I, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a very palpable problem. I just, yeah. Um, my, uh, my black octopus was that Father Latham became a surrogate for Karen Page in the comics. That he jumped in front of the, well, in the case of the, in this case, it was the nuncha, <laughs> the, uh, the billy club that punctured his sternum. <laughs> I mean, that's, I know we're playing fast and loose with inertia, but that was amazing. But anyway, just, you know, in the comics, Karen Page uh, dies at Bullseye's hand, and that's when it's a huge deal. And I remember when Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out. And you got through the whole movie thinking, holy shit, they they bypassed the, the trope of of Gwen Stacy dying, yes. you know, and then at the last minute they kill her anyway. Yeah, it's <laughs> right? just like, oh, yeah. so, screw it. Yeah, yeah, so here, you know, you're waiting this whole season for Karen Page to get in the way and be killed by Bullseye, and then Father Latham jumps in front of the thing and takes the hit and drop, dies. And it's thematically powerful for his faith and what it, what it does and triggering for his mom and other things. But I just, I didn't need someone who believed in Matt and had tried in, and who was fallible and made mistakes. I didn't need them to be a martyr. I didn't need them to be a victim. Mm-hmm. It was like, I was dreading that they were going to kill his mom the whole time. Well, but, uh, but, and but I, don't I, think, I liked but... her better that she wouldn't be killed. Didn't you think it was necessary for him to lose his father twice to get to the same reset? No. That, that's what I got from it. Yeah, I don't know. No, not really. Well, anyway, to me, that's just how I felt. I just didn't – I don't know. I felt it was much more – I thought it was much more powerful that he confronted him and said, you know, you lied to me this whole time. All those times when I was a lonely kid crying in the corner about my dad, the loss of my dad and not having anybody, and you let me sit there and cry. That was much more powerful to me that he would mm-hmm. have to live with that, that they would have to look each other in the eye with that betrayal. That's a very complex emotional problem. Mm-hmm. So to kill Latham and have him uh, sacrifice himself and become a martyr in the story to me was an easy way out. I, I, yeah, it, I it, yeah, it was a it was a an easy escape trunk. It was. Yeah. Well, anyway, I really, really, really enjoyed that season, and I could not. I just could not even. 
I wanted to watch. I wanted to just sit there and just burn through the whole thing, and I had to watch it a couple hours a, a night. And because oh, you weren't in a hospital, no, <laughs> I wasn't in mortal peril. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to listen to people. I have a monkey jacket musing, which is a, uh, you know, a challenge to 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 do a thing, a spontaneous thing. It's not so spontaneous because I told you in advance, but mm-hmm. my challenge for you in this monkey jacket musing segment is to recast three people in the Daredevil, the Netflix Daredevil world. Mm-hmm. And are you ready? Did you do your homework? I am ready. All right. What do you got? Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. So, Eldon Henson, Foggy. Wait. Holden Henson, who's that? Eldon Henson, he plays Foggy Nelson. Yes? The actor. Yes. So, that, so I'm going to start with Foggy. Oh, okay. <laughs> you really lost me. I'm like, who's that? I get it. No. You're replacing so I'm, him. Yes. I'm replacing Foggy. Which he did a really good job this season, but yes, right? I'm ready. But I'm going to replace Foggy with uh, Caleb Landry Jones. Caleb Landry Jones. Who's that? He is an up and coming actor. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I like, what do you know up. him from? What, what? How did he come to your mind? So uh, you'll remember him from uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, okay. X Men First Class. Right? He was the Banshee in X Men First Class. Right, 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 right. Yep. Right? Yep, yep. Um, I get it. Yeah, that's right? good. Uh, so like that. that, yep. Um, and then the next one, I'm just focusing on the big three. So, uh, Deborah Ann Wald, Karen Page, uh-huh. uh, with Julia Garner. Julia Garner? Mm-hmm. Okay. And remind me who that is. She is a, uh, she's an actress here. I'm pulling it up again. <laughs> uh, so I did the homework and then I forget. Yeah, yeah you did. Uh, come on. She was in focus. I didn't see focus. Was that good? It was. Really? Um, the perks of being a wallflower. All right. And in Ozark, you'll probably remember from, did you see Ozark? Yes. Oh, yes. So, you know, the, the, the white trash assistant. Ah, uh, that's good. Yeah. So I thought, cause I actually did the homework. I actually yes. went through. Yeah. All right. And then who's your third? So this one probably be a surprise. Uh, it's the obvious candidate run under your nose. Charlie Cox, the Matt yes. Murdock. I would have picked John Bernthal. Oh, hey, that's really good, actually. Hmm. That is really good. I think uh. I think there are very few people who play tortured yeah. as well as John Bernthal. Yeah, uh, he is so. The, we talked about this before about Punisher that he is so against what so many people imagine for for Punisher. But I think he because you know physically he's not that you know he's not as imposing as people think that Punisher should be, but man, it's in his face, in his, uh, <clears throat> it's in his limitations that he makes mm-hmm. Punisher so good. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and it, the demeanor shell shocked war vet <clears throat> right. uh, vibe. And then the edge, when it comes, it right. comes like a nuclear bomb. Right. What I did like about Punisher and how it differs from some of the things we saw in Daredevil was that Punisher, he's a, he, he is tactically good when he's on the battlefield, but he was not able to. He wasn't outsmarting some of his opponents, mm-hmm. right? He could mm-hmm. be manipulated because he was a soldier with a certain type of mindset, and that could be abused by people who were different kinds of thinkers. So, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. 
Okay. So, uh, all right. So my three are for Karen Page, Emma Stone. Yeah. Um, because and then for Matt, and then for Matt Murdock, Topher Grace. Nope. So Emma Stone, because what I liked about and it's somewhat influenced by some of the things that Maul did. I really like the idea that um, I feel like the character of Karen Page has to be charismatic enough that she'll talk her way into a law office and become a a secretary and eventually a partner or, you know, um, someone who has the fortitude to stand up against someone as scary as Kingpin, but also is able to convey the crumbling facade and the weakness and the frailty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about her in Birdman, especially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then for Bullseye, I cast my man, Pedro Pascal. Yep. Um, because That's a good choice. I yep. like, I love his physicality. I love his long torso. And I really loved how he was on Game of Thrones. But also, um, I can imagine that he would be really interesting to watch in the eyes. Like, I feel like he's a guy that if he was playing Poindexter, he would be stoic in his body, but you'd see his eyes like kind of flickering. Like, you'd know that he was losing his shit in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there you go. Uh, number three, Matt Murdock. Um, that's a tough one because Charlie Cox owns that character. So, like, a lot of this show is so well cast, it's really hard. Um, you're going you're gonna to go with Hugh Jackman. Ben Foster. <clears throat> ben Foster. Ben Foster. See, that was my other one. Yep. Modern Ben Foster. Not old Ben Foster, but modern Hell and High Water. Rugged Ben Foster, I can see. Mm-hmm. Have, you, um, have you seen Leave No Trace? Not yet. Dude. Should I? Dude. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right, I'm going to write down here in my it, notes. It, I'm going to say... It is, um, if, 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 uh, ben Foster blows me away. Um, that's the one with the girl, and he's going to go on the lamb and try to... Well, they are on the lamb, and yeah, they get yeah. busted on the lamb, and they get forced to go live in housing. Yeah. yeah, 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 right. Okay, so yeah, it's on my list tonight, and, and I am going to see it, and you've put it higher on my list. You, you've raised it on my list past, uh... Look who's talking too, which is oh boy, yeah, the, hey, yeah. Tear, tear that list up. I have a bonus. I have a bonus casting character, and this is a bit of a stretch. But Foggy Nelson, what I'm missing about Foggy is, um, I honestly think that the current casted Foggy is very um, uh, bowl cuts and mullets and stuff. Notwithstanding, he is fairly charismatic um, physically. He doesn't. He's not an unpleasant looking person. Um, and I think they worked hard to try to make him sort of nebbishy. But honestly, there was really no way of there was no reason to believe that um, Matt Murdock would have more charismatic pull in the office than the actor that played Foggy Nelson. And particularly no. as he became confident, in this season, he yeah. was like, you know, he was fine. Um, well, actually, in the in the um, comics, it was, in fact, Foggy, who was the most charismatic one. Well, and, and so here's what I'm getting at. Okay. There's a different type of charisma. There's a because in the comics he's heavier set, he's a little bit jovial, he's a little bit more old school, uh, disarming guy, right? He's a very um, yeah, he's just disarming. He's a disarming mm-hmm. guy, and so I cast him as uh, with Mel Rodriguez. Do you know who that is? Yes. Okay. Uh, not as um. 
not as awkwardly shy as he was on Last Man on Earth, but I was imagining him as a guy who's put paid all his dues and gotten through law school and is ready and he's got all these ideals. And then he's got the best friend who can't help but fall. He just trips over beautiful women and falls in love with them. Like, you know, like just they just walk into a coffee shop and he's getting all the phone numbers. Like it just somehow I imagine uh, Mel Rodriguez being able to play that. Like, wait a minute, I'm a nice guy. Well, what the fuck? And he would, he would fit that bill ideally because um, who he ends up with his main love interest, right? He just kind of falls into it there as well. Yeah. On the show. So it's speaking of which, you know, Jesse Plemons. Yeah. You may remember from Fargo. Oh yes. Right. He's another one that I considered for, fogging because i thought really he, good one he he could have fit that bill as well uh he's um so when we get to our uh uh rumfield recommendations uh he's gonna come up because uh, okay. i think that guy is really watchable super watchable mm-hmm. all right so um uh mr blake uh begin again simmons how about our planned plundering segment so we can basically tell everybody go watch daredevil season three and lament the mm-hmm. fact that more people didn't but um do you have any planned plundering in your future? Anything you're looking forward to consuming? <laughs> um, solid foods? <laughs> solid foods. Um, uh, getting off antibiotics. The alcohol? The, the alcohol would be good. The, All those Zimas only... that are room temperature waiting for you? Yeah, you know, the <laughs> the, the Bud Light um, <laughs> Clamato mix. Yeah, I was just going to say Clamato. Yeah. Clamato or Clamato. Yeah, yeah, tons of it. You say Clamato, I say Clamato. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. Um, so there is something that I'm looking at that looks really promising. Yes. And it is um, Fortitude. Fortitude. On Netflix. Yeah. Which one is this? Uh, it's a show about the a northernmost city in Norway. It's on an island. It's about 700 people. It's got a lot of the same thematic elements from what i can tell from the trailer of 30 days of night and basically they they uncover this mammoth carcass that starts a disease that drives everybody crazy i have not seen anything like this yes and so who's in it a whole bunch of swedes and um okay oh yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah i did read that yeah okay yeah um but they're but they have a cup so in season two it's dennis quaid um, and I'm looking it up real quick because there's an actor that I love that I'm completely spacing on. I know who you're talking about. I see him in my mind. Yes, yes. Um, jeez, Gilbert Godfrey. No, even better. <laughs> uh, gosh darn it. Full cast and crew. Sorry, bear with me. 100% precision production here. Yeah, real time. I'll edit this all out, man. Yeah, please do. Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci. Okay. <clears throat> and then Michael Gambone, Dumbledore, yep. uh, as well, isn't it? So it looks fascinating. Uh, that's on the next queue. All right. Yep. Okay. I have a, a, a reading thing and a watching thing. And then I have an asterisk for my reading thing. So my reading thing is a comic called Black Hammer. Okay. So this is by a writer named Jeff Lemire and uh, an artist named Dean Ormston. And so it was published by Dark Dark Horse. And it's a self-contained universe with some 
superhero stuff, but it's kind of dark. And it was recently, I think today was released, yesterday or today, the news was released that they've been optioned for both a movie and TV adaption. So, like, a sprawling amount of content that they are um, green greenlighting to uh, to develop on this project. So I'd done some research, a little bit of research on it um, a few months ago when I heard people saying that it was good, but I didn't actually get around to reading it. I found a source, so I'm going to be reading it soon. An internet source. Black Hammer. Apparently, okay. it's, apparently it's great. Uh, the second thing is uh, there is a Netflix series coming up. It's either a movie or a series. I don't know. Um, it's called Kingdom. Have you heard of this? So you're not talking about Outlaw King. You're talking about Kingdom. Correct. Not Outlaw okay. King. Yeah, which is a really good movie, by the way. Patty Jenkins. Didn't she do it? She did. No, she did, she did not. No, no, no. She did not. It's a guy, the Hell or High Water. Oh, uh, okay, right on. It, that looks yeah. like it's going to... At first, I was like, well... And then I read that uh, it was good. And then I... In the basis of the preconceived notion that it's good from what I read, then I watched that trailer. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Have you yeah. seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Kingdom is a zombie flick or a zombie series, but it's set in medieval Korea. Oh, wow. So and that, yeah. that to me is um, uh, design-wise a really interesting period to work with because virtually nothing in the Western world has ever touched that time period, but also in Korea specifically. But also it's a time in which culturally – there are so many parallels. There's so many connections with what was happening in Japan and to some degree what was happening in China. So you have a lot of this imagery that's very familiar, but at the same time, it's wrong. It's different to you because you never see it, right? right. So uh, I think it's going to be fascinating. And the idea that they're, you know, that they're going to fold in a, uh, fold in a, a, a zombie outbreak uh, component to the story just looks fascinating because you take away that it's just a political intrigue story in medieval Korea and I would have been 100% there <laughs> and then yeah. you add zombies to it right so yeah I'm super stoked about that and then my uh, my asterisk on uh, Black Hammer or uh, the idea that I would have something to read is uh, I have to tell you I've become the guy that I never thought I would be and it's because <laughs> of you it's because of you um I confess to you, I mean, I confessed it many times on this podcast and and privately with you as well, that I want to read and I have never have time to read. We talk about how I keep starting the same book five times and go back two pages every night. And the next thing I know, I'm at the cover page, you know, and trying trying in vain to get back into actually reading literature when my schedule is kind of fucked and I just don't seem to be able to uh, find a way to do it in a meaningful way. I took your advice and I became the guy I swore I never would be. And I just signed up for some audiobooks. <laughs> mm-hmm. It really works. It really works. So I just, I just uh, started a promo for audible and I downloaded, uh, um, I, do- I downloaded, um, what's the one from Neil Stevenson that I'm trying to read that I started reading. It's not seven eaves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's seven eaves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With the, with the, the guy who made the video game who's been running weed all the time, that guy. Um, 
And uh, also then because you always talk about how great it is and I didn't think so at the time, I also uh, downloaded Snow Crash. So I'm going to attempt to listen to both of those books. Dude, Snow Crash, I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's, it's still my favorite. I know. I just I, – so anyway. So I'm going to listen to it. And I don't know. I, I, I have so much – I have trepidation like when I press play and I have to listen to a voice. If that voice doesn't work for me, I'm going to be so pissed. But I'm ready. I'm going to try. So well, thing, uh, if, it, if it doesn't work, you just got to do the Monty Python voice. <laughs> what I need is like ways where you can just change the voice setting. On the <laughs> well, it's, I'll change the playback speed. Well, like if every audio, if every audio book could be voiced by like Liam Neeson, we would love. <laughs> but anyway, oh, so. come on, James Earl Jones. <laughs> so um, what about uh, rum fueled recommendations? Do you have any uh, any stuff that you've watched that you want or read or viewed that you want to recommend? Well, uh, I think we've gone through most of them. Um, I think I've mentioned Ozark season two in the yes. past. Yes, yes. Um, the in terms of books, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Well, have you? I mean, other than Daredevil, did you watch something while you were? Yeah, but uh, it's more of a warning. It's, it's more of a warning. <laughs> for, for God's sakes, never watch Titan. Oh, really? Yes, that's that. Um, that's that one with uh, the Terminator in it. Worthington. Yeah, the, Worthington. Worthington. Yeah, the, the Sam Worthington. Yeah, it, is it, it bad? Oh, oh, that was two and a half hours in a hospital bed. I'll never get back. <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was just uh, vile. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, it when it when so it got bad. that when it got that um, distribution. That was a warning sign, but I was hoping that against all odds, because there are some small, there are some indie sci-fi projects that are apparently really good, right? Like Prospect, yes. for example. Yes. But uh, that's not it. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and then Heredity is one that I would recommend to anybody. Oh, yes? Yes, it is. It's actually terrifying. Do I need to be in a uh, New Zealand theater or an Australian theater, wherever it was, when the no, uh, trailer, I... trailer comes on for a, like Paddington 2? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so, I, I watched it. That still a, cracks me up. <laughs> I watched it at home. Yeah, it was so bizarre. Uh, it is amazing how good that movie is. Really? Yeah. I don't like horror movies. Am I going to like it? Um, probably not then. Because because right. it is it is terrifying. Like I had to get up and take a break from it. It was so intense. Is it a lights on or lights off movie? Well, you have to watch the lights off, but yeah. you need to have a you have, you have the option to go to a room where you can turn the lights on very quickly. Got it. So, right. and then um, uh, the one last one. Uh huh. Um, I want to say uh, hereditary. That's what it is, not heredity. Hereditary. Yeah. Um, it's sorry to bother you. Oh you yeah, 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 yeah. That's the stealth sci-fi movie that no one knew was a sci-fi movie until it was, right? Yeah. It, well, it's sci-fi like you've never heard of sci-fi before. Right, it right, is right, sure. crazy. Um, or genre. That, let's say it's genre. Yeah, it's genre. It is so well done and so well acted and so surprising. It it just – that's probably the best movie I've seen in the past – well, since uh, Infinity War. Oh, sorry to bother. Yeah. It is, it is really that good. How did you, uh, how did you see it? Like pay-per-view or – I, I saw it in, in a trailer, I think, at Annihilation <laughs> in the theaters. No, no. I mean, how did you actually see the movie? Did you? Oh, watch it's on it demand. On? Oh, it's on demand. Okay, okay. 
Yeah. All right. I'm into it. Um, okay. So for me, um, so the first one, I want to take, I want to steal a, an expression that you made last time we recorded, though not quite necessarily the last um, episode podcast we've released. But you made at one point you you described a product a project as bearable though terrible, <laughs> and <laughs> so that's a very low bar for my represent. It's very low bar for my recommendation today. But um, I watched the last season of House of Cards over the last three or four nights. Ooh. And uh, did you see it? I saw season one and then I just stopped. Oh, no kidding. Well, yeah. I really, I mean, I really liked House of Cards throughout the whole thing. And I have to say, this is definitely one of those projects. And, and I've thought a lot about it while I was watching this, where what it was and what it became are two entirely different projects. And you have to be able to divorce them. So mm-hmm. House of Cards season one, particularly the end of it, the beginning of season two, was its own animal because the shocking violence in it was so out of the blue, like what the fuck is this happening in a political show? Mm -hmm. Did they really just kill this person? Right. And then that was like one of those examples where a show does an an incredibly um, eye catching or um, intriguing uh, stunt. And then they can't sustain because what are you going to do? Because once you've done it, your tolerance is already too high now. The threshold's already high, and you'll never be able to eclipse that. But they always have to try to eclipse it. Lost, right? They find the hatch. What the fuck? And then all of a sudden, it's this race to try to beat the hatch, and you never get that again, right? So, I, you know, I, I felt that House of Cards be changed after that. When they kept going past that initial season, season and a half, it ceased to be a political intrigue show revenge show that happened to surprisingly suddenly take a very visceral, real, um, fantastical risk in what he does. And then it became very over the top because more and more things were happening. The rules are broken. So now once you've opened the floodgates, it's not shocking anymore. Right. So they have trouble Mm -hmm. being shocking. However, I watched this last season because I was interested in seeing what they would do with um, the fallout behind him being exposed and then ruined over his sexual predator past and the issues. So did, did they kill him off or how do they get? He's killed off when the season starts. He's dead. Okay. And she's but she was already um, I think she already got the presidency at the end of the finale of the previous season. Mm-hmm. Um, but the framework of the new season is he's dead and she's moving forward and they're what they should have done is said 100% full speed ahead. Let's leave him dead. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, because of some of the themes and because of how cyclical it is, they kept going back to him and it has a lot more of him in it, even though you never mm-hmm. see him or hear him or anything. And um, and that's a failing, but at the same time, you know, it is fairly um, Macbethian. There was a reference early on. I don't know whether she's Macbeth or Lady Macbeth, and that was a great reference. I don't know if that was in the show or something that someone wrote, but I remember that when I was watching this and I thought, wow, it's totally true. Um, I feel like the character of Clara changes in this final season, um, and it's a hot mess, but it's interesting to watch them 
spin out and see how they t- where they take it and really in particular what they do in the last moments of the show. So I won't say that it's fantastic, but I wouldn't say at all that it was a waste of time. I didn't have that feeling like you get with Iron Fist where you're like, well, I feel like I'm watching because I watched earlier ones and I want to be a completist and I don't want to give up. I didn't have that feeling at all. I enjoyed every episode. I just felt like thematically pacing wise, um, quality level, there were some, it was changing. It had been changing for seasons, but at this point it had become a different show in its final season. And it's entirely about the fourth wall, fourth wall issue of what happened with Kevin Spacey. And I mean, there's just no way of getting around that. I mean, there's a point where they're talking about his character and they're talking about Kevin Spacey at the same time, right? <laughs> and and the character already was more Kevin Spacey than any other character he's ever played. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it was just, mm, it's a lot of there, there, right? So anyway, yeah. I still enjoyed it. Um, bearable, okay. though terrible. <laughs> um, also, I would like to not recommend, um, I saw for the first time, uh, right around Halloween, um, something that uh, my lovely wife had spun up for the kids. We're always in this challenge trying to find movies on Friday night movie night that are going to be appropriate for them that we want to see, but they also will be willing to see. And um, she landed on Hocus Pocus. Did you ever see that when you were a kid? No. Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy as, no. as witches. Yes, I, I know of it, but I will not speak of it. It is a hot, hot mess. I wrote down in my notes. I took the time to write notes down because I felt like it was important to warn people. Um, Seeing it in 2018, uh, Hocus Pocus, I said the Bette Midler was the worst combination of witchy, hippie, Renfair, and overcooked, self-indulgent actor ever. (laughs) That's pretty brilliant. (laughs) I like that. Um, uh, There's a there's a knowing black cat that's getting in all kinds of trouble and is kind of a bitch. And we, I felt like it reminded me of our cat at home. Um, here's the other thing. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is kind of cute at first, you know, cause she's the, she's the one witch that's, you know, kind of pretty and whatever else, but she's got this like weird makeup and her hair is all teased. And she's also like affected. She's like, Ugh, you know, she's almost like Bay Ling in, uh, in uh, Crow two, if you know what I mean. I like the pretty lights. Or Southland, you know, too. Yeah, Southland. right. We've talked about this before. She's a theme on our podcast. Um, she becomes a proto-Harley Quinn, and it's really weird. Because she's, like, kind of unhinged, and she's got weird makeup, and she's a little, like, kind of sex potty, but also unhinged and weird and just dumb. And it's it doesn't work really well. So what I'd like to do is uh, give an anti-recommendation for Hocus Pocus. Don't watch it. In any context, with any kids or non-kids in the room, just don't watch it. Thank you. That's uh, it. But I want to I want to rebound into something positive. I saw one other movie um, that I liked enough that if you ever see it or you want to spend more time on it, I would love to talk in more detail. But um, it's a movie I've been trying to get my wife to see with me for, I don't know, three months. It's Date Night. No. I've so, seen it. No, I've seen Game it. Night. Game Night. Not Date Night. I've, Game Night. I've seen both. Okay. Yeah. It's Date Night was okay. There's a canoe. Um, game night is the one I want to talk about. Um, game. No, game night. Game night. Date night had the canoe and and a uh, and um, like uh, yeah, totally different, right? Yes, Steve, very Car- Steve Carell and, uh, and yeah, right. No, no, this is game night. And holy shit, man, I love the hell out of that movie. What did you think? I loved it too. Um, 
I thought it was uh, well. So since Ozark, I've had a whole different oh, yeah. page, oh, right? Yeah. Um, and horrible bosses. I think it's uh, and Arrested Development. Come on, and Arrested Development, right? So right. I think he's had a, the Batemans had a uh, basically a reconnaissance equal to McConaughey <laughs> just without the, yep. the recognition. Um, but I, I thought it had enough twists. I mean, there were some predictable elements into it, but, sure. uh, and actually Jesse Plemons. That's what it. I'm saying. That's Absolutely what I was saying. Brilliant. Jesse Plemons <laughs> yep. is just, he, he totally brilliant in that he movie. He was fucking unreal for that movie. Yeah. So I, I really like that. And it reminds me of another movie that I would recommend is, uh, not kind of the same genre tag. Oh, right. I haven't seen that yet, but I want yeah, to. I, I, I merged was, them in my mind, so I told Doris, uh, my lovely wife, that um, Jeremy Game Renner tag. was in this. Game tag. Yeah, and it was, tag. Not, <laughs> it was not tag. Um, do you remember Gotcha back in the day? Yes. Yeah. How 80s can you get? How Cold Laser War, tag. post-Cold War 80s. Laser tag. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Game Night, here's the thing. Um, I don't want to be too uh, prurient about this, but um, Rachel McAdams does not age. At all. Actually, nobody weird? in that movie. No, actually, nobody in that movie ages. Peyton doesn't age. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. <laughs> but it, the only thing that they needed was John Cusack to show up and be, you know, a misguided teenager looking for love. Well, how about this? I mean, uh, we got through the whole movie, and then I said to my wife, "I said Anthony Michael Hall was pretty great in that." And she's like, "When was he in it?" Or sorry, uh, not Anthony Michael Hall. Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Hall. Anthony Michael Hall was not in this movie. Michael C. Hall. I said he was awesome uh, in this movie. And she's like, I didn't see him in this movie. And I said, he was the fucking Guatemalan or whatever the hell it was at the end of the movie. And she's like, what? And then I rolled it back and showed it to her. And she's like, holy shit. I didn't even recognize him. Yep. Because he lost all that weight and he was kind of understated in it and everything. Yeah. He's great. Yep. Loved the movie. Loved the movie and I loved the cast. It was a lot of it. It was the casting choices were dead on. And there were a couple of people in that cast that were total unknowns to me. Right? Such as? The Irish um, non-girlfriend that was invited in just because she might be good at games. Oh, yeah. Have you seen her before? Um, no. And her dumbass guy that invited her. I've never seen him before. You're talking about Sharon Horgan? Nope. Am I? The dude. I think you are. The dude that went for the, the oh, no, Fabergé egg. Uh, Lamorne Morris. No, no. The one no. who went for the went for the Fabergé egg when he wasn't supposed to. Oh, yeah. Right? I don't the know one that name. invited yeah. her. Yeah, I've never seen yeah. him before, and he did a great job. Uh, so anyway, yeah, game night. Fantastic. And it got really well-reviewed and got no box office. Yeah, it's really strange. And um, uh, the writer-slash-director of this was the the central nerd on freaks and geeks who's gone on. I mean, he wrote, he's written a number of things that we love. Um, and, and he's been in front of the camera a few times on shows and stuff, but, um, it's just fascinating to, he, he's like, uh, he's like, what's his name? Jennifer Aniston's ex that, um, Mark Perez. Yeah. No, that you, (laughs) um, what's his name from, uh, the leftovers. Oh, no, it's not. It's Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, right? It's the French dude. Yeah. No, not, he's not French. Yes. Yes, Aniston's ex? Yeah. Yes, he is French. Use your Google. He wrote I'm Charlie's doing... Angels 2. Or he was in Charlie's Angels 2. He wrote Iron Man 2. Hold on. Just hold on. Justin Thoreau. 
Yeah. No, he's an American actor. Sorry. Yes, he's very American. The it's point, though, is... It's his name. And actually, I stand back. Game Might actually did very well at the box office. It got $120 million Did it really? On a $40 million budget. So, yeah, it did fine. Um, uh, John Francis Daly, who's the guy from Freaks and Geeks. I mean, we, uh, my wife and I saw Freaks and Geeks later, right? Like, So we, we saw him after we were into Judd Apatow for other things. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing all these guys young when they're, you know, you know. I don't know, preternaturally young, but he grew into, I mean, he's a handsome guy as a young adult or as an adult, but his primary focus has been behind the camera. And it's shocking to see how much he's been involved in projects that are kind of unusual and good. And mm-hmm. this is a great example of it. It starts with this comedy thing and then it becomes drama and then it's comedy and then it's gross out. It's very, uh, I don't know. I thought it was fairly sophisticated as a, as a, as a piece overall, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, the only thing that was missing was The Rock. <laughs> that would have been too much, man. I think you've walked yeah, so, too far. So, Justin Trout, look at it. I mean, listen to this. Uh, worked with David Lynch, appearing in Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, screenwriter for Tropic Thunder, Iron Man 2, and Rock of Ages. Tropic Thunder, I forgot about that. And Tropic Thunder is my favorite part, uh, comedy of all time. And he loves uh, tank tops and like uh, sleeveless shirts because he. he he goes to the gym and he likes to rip it up. Uh, it rip pineapple. He it's drives. All pineapple. He drives his uh, Harley to the gym and he rips. Yeah. Does pyramids? He does pyramids, right? Burns out I his arms, no, gets them all yeah, puffed I don't, out. I have, I don't, I have no idea. You could do a few pyramids. Please. I do antibiotics. <laughs> this has been a sweet, sweet recording, man. It has I've enjoyed been. it. It's been a podcast from beginning to end, and no one yep. can disagree with me. Yep, it, it has been, and now it's time for me to go do my pills and go to bed. <laughs> It's one thirty-seven Pacific Standard Time. It's been great. Um, I'm glad you're alive, and uh, I look forward to talking to you very soon. Yes, uh, and happy Turkey Day. Happy Turkey Day. I hope to see you in the flesh very soon, where I can do my best to undermine your antibiotics. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Have Take a wonderful care. night. No, no knives in your in your picture frames, man. So here's the thing. You probably thought that was a pretty sweet podcast recording session or a number of sessions that you just binge through, maybe six hours of them. But you said to yourself, I wish there was more. What am I supposed to do? So here's the tip. If you go to iTunes, if you go to your podcast streaming app of choice, you will find all of our previous shows ready for you. The best way to get them is to subscribe to the podcast and then select download all, get all of them. And then you can just listen to them over and over again while you sleep. 